Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys to the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. And of course, sometimes when we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about the kingdoms of the world, because there's a lot of kingdoms out there in the world. And of course, the word kingdom just means governments, you know, somebody's dominion, somebody has dominion over something, that's a kingdom. And uh, you can have, you know, the kingdom of the sea. Maybe they have dominion over the sea, but that would be a different set of laws because the kingdom over the land is usually referred to as the law of the land. So uh, we have lots of different kinds of governments. We don't call them kingdoms. We'll call them republics or democracies or uh, communist governments or social democracies or democratic socialism or are a variety of different titles that we apply to these different governments. And uh, those, some of those names have been around for a long time. And so some of the definitions of those governments vary from time to time. I always remember that, you know, America, of course, was originally a republic, but I say America was. A lot of people tell you the United States was a republic. But actually, the United States government and the Constitution of the United States did not create a republic. The republic already existed. The the American Republic was talked about way before 1776, back with the colonial charters, back with uh, King Charles I when he was beheaded. And you had Cromwell there. He actually sent troops to America to defend the American Republic. Because America was a republic to begin with, and partially because of the fact that the king wasn't here. (laughs) There were men here representing the king. But the colonial charters, a struggle to write the colonial charters in such a way that men could be free. And, And they did this to get men to come here. You had to create some kind of incentive. We're going to just come here and create another you know, dominion where we're all subject to the king again? Well, some people would do that, but a lot of the people, to face the dangers with true courage, risk your family and everything to come here. You needed some kind of incentive other than just be a subject to the king. You were a subject to king in England. You didn't have to cross the ocean in these little leaky boats. So they gave them some incentive. Pilgrims were big on getting some kind of incentive. And then they, we've told the story of how they tried to get around that with a little bit of secrecy and landing in the wrong place like Plymouth and uh, then making the deals with the opposing company that had financed them coming over here. Bad way to go, pilgrims. Bad pilgrims. Bad pilgrims. They shouldn't have done that. But they had a lot of other things in character in their life that they were good about. 
And that's one of the things about good and bad. It's usually not a group that's good and bad. It's individuals in that group. I mean, the Sanhedrin at the time of Jesus Christ was pretty darn corrupt. And we told you that, you know, there had been a Sanhedrin years before, back before Alexander the Great came to uh, Judea. And uh, there was a high priest and there was a Sanhedrin, but it was shortly after that high priest passed away that the Sanhedrin became disillusioned with the high priest and elected their own. Well, of course, if you go back to the Old Testament, you can read a little bit of Hebrew and you have a little bit of knowledge of what was going on back there. Even if you read the English, you should be able to figure that the high priest was not elected by the Sanhedrin. Uh, okay, well, I just got news that the chat room is not active, but it is active. Somebody's in the chat room. Uh, Sarah's in the chat room. Uh, see who else is in the chat room. Oh, I'm in the chat room. <laughs> I said, oh, now there's three. Uh, okay, Isabel's in the chat room. So whoever called in and said there isn't a chat room, you might want to reload because it's... The chat room is open. <laughs> okay. But thanks for the call. Good heads up. I'll just clip this little part out. And I will give, we may have a special guest towards the end of the program, but they're en route. And uh, if you want to call into the program and ask a question, uh, I'll give you that number. Uh, we're going to get along here a little bit before I start taking calls, but uh the number is 319-527-6208. I'll give that one more time. And I'm putting all this together so it's really easy to clip out uh, this because I won't leave this in the final recording. But uh, it's uh, 319-527-6208. 319-527-6208. Th- so you can call in and just listen to the program or you can call in and push one and I'll see your hand raised up and I can make you active so that you can uh, ask a question uh, or make a pertinent comment. Uh, Towards the end of the program, sometimes I open it up to just general topics and people can certainly do that. So anyway, back to where was I? (laughs) Okay. There's all kinds of different governments, and uh, America was supposedly a republic to begin with, but I say America because the United States is clearly an indirect democracy in a republic, and it was created to guarantee to the people a republican form of government. Now, that's really a logistical important position to understand, that the United States federal government For one thing, it's federal. And for another thing, it's clearly an indirect democracy because you see people electing men who are going to make laws restricted. It's a constitutional indirect democracy, which people began to call a republic. But it was America that was the republic. It was they had the republic before anybody wrote out the constitution. Matter of fact, they had lots of republics, but if once you understand the true nature of a republic, it, you could say all of the Americas was one republic, or virtually all, because some of the states were a little bit different. Because in it, as uh, 
Adams had made reference to, Thomas Paine had made reference to, that the people now were were masters of their own destiny. They were free from things public. And that's what liberes publica in the Latin means free from things public, and that's really where you get the word republic. Later on, you know, Romans have a tendency to shorten up things. They're big for idioms. So they lowered it up res publica, but it meant free from things public. And then it it began to degenerate over the 500 years after the establishment of the original Roman Republic with the casting out of the Tarquinian kings. And it began to create other offices and the Senate eventually got power to make some sort of legislative choices, but it was a gradual shifting. Originally, the Senate was just old men. That's what it meant. It meant old men. And they were the heads of families, chosen by heads of families, up to a network of Romans. And those old men, they were from different areas of the original Roman Empire, which was a very small consolidated area at first, you know, the Latins. And uh, because they came from different areas, they would tell you what the people were thinking back home. They would share thoughts and then they would go back home and tell the people back home what they were doing, kind of like Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett was in the legislature. He went back home. He was going to run for office. And Horatio Bunt, Bunt, said, uh, I'm not going to vote for you again because you did a terrible thing. And he says, what did I do? And Horatio, uh, I said blunt. I think it's Bunce, Horatio Bunce. Horatio, I remember that part. Anyway, you can go look it up at Preparing You because we have it there in an article. He was really upset with David because David voted for legal charity. For people in Washington, D.C., we got a lot of money in the government coffers. We had actually a treasury with extra money, and we decided to take a little bit of that and help these poor, poor people out who were subject to a terrible fire where they, some of them had to run out of their homes uh, naked because they the fires were spreading so quickly. And they said that they took the money out of the government coffers to help them. And he said, that's not – you can't do that. He knew you can't do that. It would destroy America. It's robbing the people when you do that. It's called legal charity, and it's it's a horrible thing. But most people today think it's a great thing. When uh, Alexis de Tocqueville came to America, he saw legal charity was a bad thing. There was very little of it around in America. It was getting to be more and more around in Europe. And in England, and he said it was terrible. It would destroy the people, and it would empower government. And, of course, we know in America, FDR promoted it heavily, and so did LBJ, and so did Obama. Of course, Obama's agenda, very clearly, because some of his best friends were Cloward and Piven, was to destroy the people. I mean, LBJ's plan of using legal charity in his great society was to buy the vote of the black people, make them dependent upon them, 
See, then that's when all the blacks went from being Republicans, because it was the Republicans that had freed the blacks. It was the Democrats who were the KKK. KKK was all in the Democratic Party. And so the blacks didn't want to be Democrats. But then when LBJ started giving out all these benefits to all these blacks that were sometimes poor, especially in the South, and they tried to get a lot of them signed up in the North to that legal charity. And, of course, they had legal charity when they were slaves. You know, if you worked on a plantation and you got sick, plantation owner would make sure you were well, just the same as he would make sure that his horses were well and his cattle were well because those were his property. He didn't want to see you die. Now, to be fair, some of those people who were slave owners, which included black slave owners and white slave owners, they actually cared about the people. Most of the people who were slaves in America were not slaves on gigantic plantations. They were servants of a single household, and they were cared about in that household. We had the same thing in England. People would be what they called the servant class, and they would work for the same family their whole life. And that family would take care of them when they were older. And there was a mutual bond between each other. Same thing back in the days of Abraham. Better to be a slave to Abraham than a free man in Egypt. So anyway, we see this pattern throughout history, but there's these roles that people play. And these are forms of government that people establish. And those forms of government that people establish, there's a reason and a purpose to them. And there's a method in their madness. But a republic, the people are free from things public. This is why the Constitution was never put to the people for a popular vote. Had it been put to the people for a popular vote... Almost every historian agrees, anyone worth his salt, I haven't found anybody who disagrees, knows that the Constitution would have been voted down had it been the product of the vote of the people. And yet most people don't get that. I mean, it's just a historical fact. We write about in the book Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions. I think we mention it in some of the other books as well. And it's, you can read about it in pretty good detail in a very short few pages. And Clark's summary of U.S. American law, it's well accepted. That had it been the Constitution been put to a vote of the people, of the individual states, the citizens of the individual states, it would have been voted down. So why in the world did they start it out with we the people of the United States? Well, of course, when they wrote, we the people of the United States, there was no United States. (laughs) But they were writing it, and this was part of the debate. You know, Madison and them wondered, you know, there was a debate with Madison and several others. Why are you putting, it should say, we the states, because it's the states creating this document called the United States Constitution. It wasn't the people. People didn't want it, which is going to bring me to a topic. I'm going to talk about Oregon General Jural Assembly. Somebody asked me about that. 
Paul F., I'll refer to him as, and I'll probably send him this recording afterwards. I explained briefly the problem with the Oregon General uh, Jural Assembly, and I actually have their webpage open, and I can read to you some of this stuff in there. But basically, a republic, the people are free from things public. There is no legal charity in a republic. There's charity, and there's charity that we could say is legal <laughs> in the sense that, you know, if you, if you went down to a church and the church said, oh, yeah, we, we can give you some food. And, oh, yeah, we can, we can put you up here for a little shelter, and we can do these things for you. But, uh, you know, there's a pile of wood out back that you have to chop. And uh, while we fix you your dinner. And I, I remember a minister told me he always had that, where he had a pile of wood out back that he didn't chop. And he left unchopped so that if somebody came and wanted a free meal, he says, well, why don't you chop that wood and we'll go fix you something. He said numerous times when he came back, the axe was still there and the guy was gone. <laughs> He didn't want to even work for his dinner, but uh, just another one of those principles. But in a, in a true republic, you're free from things public. And even we have an article, Citizen versus Citizen. We have an article, Republic. We have an article on democracy. They're all part of chapters in the book, Covenants of the Gods, which explain what a republic really is and what a, how it was defined back in those days of early America. But people promoting it today don't seem to really understand that. Just to give you, it, it, it says there on the webpage of the Oregon General Jural Assembly, our mission is to return Oregon to a constitutional government, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It doesn't have the word and in there. For the people, just as our founding fathers intended and provided for. No, the people provided for a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. The founding fathers of the Constitution of the United States created an indirect democracy that some people will call a republic to guarantee that republican form of government. But you know who really has to guarantee that republican form of government? It's the people. Now, on their website, they capitalize the word people in of the people, by the people, and for the people. They don't just capitalize the first letter. They capitalize the whole word. Except for the people are individuals. You wouldn't capitalize the whole word. In a republic, the people are individuals, not subject to the administration of government. I'm quoting right out of the definition of a citizen Back in both the Black's Law Dictionary and you can go back to uh, other dictionaries of the time, that a citizen could be not subject to the administration of government with certain rights, including the right to marry, you know, uh, rights to property, all this stuff. Not subject to the administration of government. Now, you don't have that today, and I don't think that the people at this general general assembly really understand what that means and how you even get back to that. Because they think somehow or other the founding fathers 
created a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. No. They created the United States federal government to guarantee that you could be the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. You were already that government before the Constitution was written. And the we, the people, at the beginning of the Constitution did not refer to you as a citizen on your own land in your own state. didn't refer to you. It referred to the senators, congressmen that, you know, would be elected as representatives and take an oath to the Constitution. And it would also include ambassadors, uh, members of the executive branch, members of the judicial branch of the federal government. Most courts at that time had nothing to do with the Constitution of the United States. They already existed before the Constitution of the United States was created. They were courts that decided fact and law. Fact and law. Which means that if their local house of Burgess said that this is the law, the jury could say, no, it ain't. (laughs) We ain't going to do this. We're not going to enforce this law because they had the right to decide fact and law. I don't think the people really understand this at the Oregon General Jural Assembly. They just don't understand it. I'd love to explain it to them. I'm only using them. There's, you probably find groups like this all over the country. And But they don't, you know, they, they even go and say, you know, that uh, this is called a de jure government, de jure of the people by right, the template and model that they created the Republic of the United States of America government by was called the General Jural Assembly. Well, maybe some places. Uh, but the reality is, is that the Republic wasn't created by the Constitution. Otherwise, you couldn't write a Constitution to guarantee a Republican form of government. The Republican form of government already existed. The people are already taking, you know, I I always remember Thomas Jefferson tried to get a law passed in Virginia that required that everybody build in every voting district, that they were to build a school within walking distance of every home within that district. When districts were pretty small, voting districts were pretty small, you know, they were contained within parishes. And he could never get it passed. You know, one of the reasons why he could never get it passed is that we're already doing that. Well, who was doing that? Well, the militia. The militia was building the schools. The militia was building the roads. And how were they doing that? Well, volunteers. People volunteered in the community to go help build the road. And people donated supplies. And they came with their mule teams or their horse teams or their oxen teams and their plows and and their saws and everything. And they worked on the road. They picked a time and they all got together. It's like a barn raising at an Amish community. They did this. And in some places where they had to build a bridge or something, they would they would make it a toll bridge for a period of time until they and they'd borrow money. Somebody would put up extra money to build this bridge because it took a little bit more. You had to get bigger timbers and all this kind of stuff. So they would 
they would finance the building of the bridge. A bunch of people would get together, finance the building of the bridge, and they'd make it a toll bridge. I can show you diaries been published for way back from those days where just a local farmer built the bridge across the creek. And he put a little little barricade there, like a, one of these little pole gates, a single gate pole that goes across. And it said there was a bell there to pay a toll. Now, if you just wanted to walk across, they'd let you just walk across a lot of time. You didn't have to pay a toll. But if you came with freight wagons, you were expected to pay a toll because by him building that bridge, he's provided a service. Otherwise, you've got to get your oxen to go down in the creek bed and then back up the other side. Well, he's built this bridge that will hold your ox and your carts, and it will save you hours and hours of trouble. And so he wants to get compensated. Usually it was reasonable. If it wasn't reasonable, somebody would build a bridge over a little ways away, <laughs> and they'd go over there. Now, that, that particular guy in that particular diary, he was a farmer, and he produced a farm crop. And But he was also a blacksmith, and he made charcoal, and he ran his forge, and he made nails amongst other things, as a blacksmith. But he made lots and not lots of nails, like a whole barrel full of nails. And he could get somebody to ship it for him and, or sell it for him or buy it from him to go themselves and sell it. Because those freight wagons were, you know, like going to Kentucky and then going back to the coast. And stuff you were, you know, mostly what they were bringing from Kentucky was whiskey because you could transport a very valuable amount of whiskey in a wagon and sell it for a pretty good profit back on the coast. And they made that whiskey out of grain. Now, they could ship the grain to the coast, but there's going to be a lot more weight going back. But if you condense that whiskey down to, you know, you know, that grain down to whiskey, then you could sell that. So this is all the commerce going on. But that was in the Republic. There, nobody's charging them. You would be charged if you wanted to use that guy's bridge or this community's bridge. But they wanted you to go. If they raised the price too high, you wouldn't go that way. You'd go another way. And it was to your benefit that they were coming through there because – you could, you know, maybe the toll was is that, oh, we'll leave you this bottle of whiskey <laughs> or something, you know, and people were putting up inns and everything, and they they would have access to these guys coming through, and they would be able to get first dibs on supplies, and and guys were glad to pay it. Now, this goes all the way back to the Roman Empire. When you pass through certain places, through harbors or places where there were bridges, or even into certain marketplaces, or maybe you were out there where there was a danger of robbers because you're really out on a remote trail. And they said, well, you come into our fort. You can bring your animals into our fort. We'll sell you some hay. We'll, for a modest price, we'll give you protection for the night. This is a business. But that's the government of the people for the people. That wasn't created by the Constitution. That's created by the people. And, of course, 
people who listen on a regular basis know that the phrase government of the people, for the people, and by the people comes out of the Bible. Well, not the biblical scripture text, but it comes out of the Bible that was translated by Wycliffe, who says this is the book for the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. So, does the Jural people understand that? What are they trying to get back to exactly? And do they know how they got away from it? They talk about on November 12, 2022, Patriots in Oregon assembled together and the Oregon General Jural Assembly was formed. This is granted to us by our First Amendment right, which states that it is the right of the people to peaceably assemble. Well, absolutely assemble. Congregation of the church is a peaceable assembly. But I'll lay you odds that most of the people in their peaceable assembly are not really in a peaceable assembly. They go on Oregon uh, counties are forming a petite jural assembly, which just means a little jural assembly, although they may add some sort of definition to it, in order that all the people in the state are represented upon completion of this final task. All the people in Oregon will have true de jure government representation and the unlawful de facto government of bankrupt U.S. corporation can be removed. The same action is taking place in many states across our country. I shudder to think. For one thing, let me ask them questions of the Oregon General. I know they're not here to answer this, but they want to come on the program. I'll, I'll bring one of their representatives on the program, but I'll give you a couple questions now. You say... So how are you going to take over your social welfare programs in the state of Oregon when you throw out this other uh, government that you think is part of the bankrupt U.S. corporation and can remove? And, of course, you know as a U.S. citizen, you're already surety for the debt of the U.S., and we're going to get into that in the uh, next part of the program. How are you going to take care of social welfare? How are you going to build your roads? How are you going to fund your schools? Are you going to take over property tax? And you're going to still tax your neighbor to provide public education? You're not going to do it like they were doing in Virginia with Jefferson, where the people were building it with their own funds, their own labor, and their own efforts. No, are you going to continue to put property tax on the land? And force your neighbor to contribute so that you can have free education for your kids? Is that what you're going to still be doing? Uh, Is your social welfare going to still be – because now if you're kicking out the U.S. government, you're kicking out the federal government, and you're kicking out – I assume you're going to kick out the Federal Reserve. So how are you going to – are you going to honor Social Security payments to all the old people in Oregon? Are you going to kick them out so that they can't get those Social Security payments? What are you going to do about banking? Are you going to still be using Federal Reserve notes? Are you going to issue your own Confederate currency? You see, you can't get to where you want to go 
from where you seem to be starting and the direction you seem to be going. But we will show you in another part of the show how to actually peaceably assemble it. Because if you're going to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, if you're going to force your neighbor to build your public schools, if you're going to threaten to take away his house, if you're going to have any kind of income tax where you're going to take away his labor, then you're not peaceable. If you're going to throw out the Corporation of the United States, which was a corporation from the very beginning, because you can read the Constitution, that's a corporate charter. From the beginning, that's a corporate charter with members, voting procedures, rules of electorate, etc. It's a corporation. Two or more people gather together to be the United States government. Did not include the citizens of the several states. They didn't have any say-so in it at all. That was never put to a vote. That we the people isn't those people down there in the republic. It was the people who gathered outside of those states. Eventually, they gathered at Washington, D.C. and decided certain matters that the states turned over to the federal government. Now, since then, the people have turned all kinds of matters over to the federal government. You know, not like Horatio Bunt said. No, we take care of all the charity in our community. We don't look to the federal government to provide welfare and benefits in our community because we know that would destroy our community. That was known 150 years before Christ. Polybius said it. Plutarch said it at the time of Christ. Lady Godiva said it a thousand years ago that you would destroy the nation if you go to legal charity. Alexis Tocqueville said it in the 1850s when he turned the United States and went back to Europe. Legal charity destroys. It degenerates the people. And it makes government more powerful. And that's the problem. Is the fact that you don't build your own roads. You don't build your own schools through faith, hope, and charity. You're not a peaceably assembly if you still want to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You're not a peaceable assembly because you still believe in forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You can't jump from where you're at today to a true libera res publica, free from things public, under your present state of mind and condition and the existing debts, which are not just fiction. I mean, did you go to public school? Who paid for that? Uh, who's taking care of your parents? Is it the federal government? Are they getting a Social Security check? Because there is no Social Security fund. Social Security fund has never, ever, ever been operating in the black. It's always operated in the red. There is no division of funds. There is no separate trust fund. doesn't exist. That's the law. Go read our article on Social Security. Go read our article on Corbin. Go read an article on the Corbin of Christ and show me where I'm wrong. But it's a fact. I mean, some of the top economists in the United States, men I actually think know what they're talking about, like Thomas Sowell. You can't get a single payment from Social Security without somebody who exercises authority forcing somebody else to pay in. And, of course, they don't. 
they're just driving up the debt, and we'll get to that in another part of the program. So, no, the Oregon Journal's Assembly hasn't got a clue what it's doing. And I'm not faulting them as individuals. It's really hard to get. But they're, And they may really want to return to some of the values and principles of early America. But whoever is giving them their information, they're not giving them the whole picture. Because if they're going to throw out this other government, imagining that all their condition is the product of this other government, the United States government, no, you're not peaceable. Uh, You want to think that you are and that they're the bad guys. No, you're the bad guys because you empowered, you gave the federal government the responsibility to take care of your parents to take care of the welfare of your society and to provide schools and roads and police departments and everything else you weren't doing you could have done it yourselves but it's crept in over the years now you have to repent and go back the amazing thing is, this is exactly what Jesus Christ and John the Baptist were preaching in Judea. It's exactly what Moses was trying to convince the people that were in the bondage of Egypt. What was the bondage of Egypt? 20% of your labor belonged to the government. How much of your labor belongs to the government? It, you could blame it on the Pharaoh, but that's not what the Bible says. Now, I mean, the Pharaoh started doing stuff that he shouldn't have been doing. There's no two ways about that. But the reality is, as Reuben told you, because you wouldn't hear the cries of your brother. That you're willing to sell your own brother into servitude. That you yourself went into servitude. And that's why you're in servitude today. Is because you didn't, you were not like Horatio Bunce who thought we can take care of the needy of our society through charity. We're not going to get men who exercise authority and force our neighbors to contribute to what we want. That's why you've lost your freedom. You want your freedom back? You've got to take back your responsibilities. So anyway, that was kind of my answer. Uh, I was looking here to see what I told Paul who asked this question. It's not a Paul. Most of you know. But you can look up the articles on Republic, articles on democracy, articles on citizen versus citizen and read that because well, while in a Republic there are citizens not subject to the administration of government, it goes on to define citizenship by virtue of the 14th Amendment subject to the administration of government. And you have to prove that you're that citizen, that person, in order to get public school education, (laughs) to get somebody to take care of your parents, that you have to do no more ought for your parents, which is what Christ was complaining about Corbin, which is what Corbin was, was a social security system. And of course, then we can go all the way back to uh, 1913 and the Federal Reserve Act and 1916 didn't create income tax on your wages and salaries. It created income tax on the wages and salaries of fiduciaries of corporations. You're the one that incorporated yourself by applying to the benefits. And, of course, the Bible tells us over and over again 
Be not desirous of the dainties of rulers. For they are deceitful meats. They they run towards death. And, and Peter says that's a covetous practice, obviously. And he says through those covetous practices, you will be made human resources. Translates out as merchandise, but same thing. And you'll curse your children with death. You're the children of the ones who cursed you with death. But Christ had the solution. Moses had the solution. And that's what we talk about here at His Holy Church. And we will show you how to implement that in your life. But it's going to be a bumpy ride. You can't just go to a couple meetings and expect to be free. You actually have to peaceably assemble. Not say, well, we'll take over tax collecting from now. (laughs) No, you got to go a different route. So anyway, we're going to shift gears here. Uh, I'm going to actually, I'll tell you what, I'll go to a commercial break. And uh, I got a couple of them here. I don't know. Let's see. There's a promo. Let's see. Let's do this one. See what this one sounds like. And then I'll come back and we'll go to part two. We talk a lot about the kingdom here. And we talk a lot about what most churches are afraid to talk about or don't even know to talk about, which is what the first century church was really doing. But just talking about it is not enough. We encourage everybody to join us in their local neighborhoods, in their local communities, to find out more about what they can do to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Gather with others who are already starting this road or starting to turn around and do things differently. Join us on thelivingnetwork.org or at hisholychurch.org. Go to the network links or go to preparingyou.com. Join the network there. It's all the same, and we'll try to hook you up with people in your local area. They will not be perfect. They don't walk on water. They are not necessarily saints, but they are talking about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And join us on Facebook, facebook.com, his holy church, all one word. Join us there. We'll give you updates so you can start doing some studying and thinking about these things and start looking into these things for yourselves. You must become a doer of the word. Okay, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, we're going to go into part two, uh, and we'll, we're not going to really talk about the uh, Oregon General Jural Assembly and the illusion that they are starting a peaceable assembly, because. Oregon hasn't been a peaceable assembly for a long time because everybody has been taking a bite out of one another through civil government in order to get free stuff at the expense of their neighbor. And now they've been devoured and they want to say that that government is illegitimate. And the truth is they are illegitimate because they live by covetous practice. They've, Developed an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by the rule of force and violence. By taking away from their neighbor. By taking a bite out of their neighbor. And so they've been devoured. And they've also degenerated. And all those social bonds that hold a free society together are dissolved or degenerated enough that they cannot even stand against a mask mandate, (laughs) much much less what they're talking about taking over the government. 
Not going to happen. Not no way is it going to happen. Besides, if if you if you don't understand how a real republic works, which of course Moses understood because he was one of the first creators of a republic in our known history. There were others around earlier, but we don't have much historical evidence of them. But almost every republic that was started could quickly degenerate into something less than a republic, like an indirect democracy or a social democracy or or a communist state or a totalitarian dictatorship, which, of course, always happens when you institute the rule of force and, the, and you desire benefits at the expense of your neighbor and engage in those covetous practices. And, of course, that's what everybody did. So... And that's what Horatio Bunch, somebody looked it up. I see in the chat room that they, because I, I was trying to remember exactly how that name was pronounced, but it is Bunch. So anyway, um, so what are we going to talk about in part two? Well, let's talk about Army Colonel Douglas McGregor. <laughs> that seems like a big shift all of a sudden in our topics, but actually it's not really. I, I heard an interview it was a Tucker Carlson interview of this Army Colonel Douglas McGregor. He's no longer in the military, I guess. Uh, but he was talking about uh, a lot of things, covered a lot of topics. But somewhere down in the middle of his conversation, let's see, actually, me, actually, uh, I guess I pasted in a couple of places here. I, I pasted just, I clipped out a little piece of it. But around 24 minutes into the interview, he starts to talk about the latest the latest estimates since 2001 spending including the spending in Ukraine all the military spending designed to support these interventions that's the intervention in all these different countries spending in Ukraine all the military spending designed to support these interventions uh conflicts wars whatever you want to call them is about $14 trillion to where we stand now, the nation's sovereign debt, which, of course, uh, I know the economic uh, luminaries think is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just dead on paper. Nobody's going to come and collect it. Well, maybe they are. They're not going to collect it, but they may come. <laughs> But they have an excuse now because you owe them fourteen trillion dollars. But uh, but it is the national foreign debt, and he says, but you have one hundred thirty million workers, and you look at those figures, and suddenly you realize that every adult male or woman in the United States who works for a living has a debt hanging over them of roughly $200,000 to $240,000 apiece. Now, some of you people who think you're Christians, you said, but Christ paid our debt. <laughs> well, well, you've got a new debt now. And you got that new debt because you haven't been doing what Christ said. You've been workers of iniquity because you're doing what we talked about in part one, which is you've been taking a bite out of one another in order to get free stuff at your neighbor's expense, which, of course, is not loving your neighbor as yourself. I don't care how much you tell me you love them sitting in the pew under the guiding eyes of your pulpit. 
If you're forcing people to contribute to what you want for free under the threat of putting them in jail or taking their house away or what have you or fining them, then you don't love your neighbor. You love yourself and you want to be comforted and you don't mind what they take away. As a matter of fact, when your neighbor is crying out or he's working himself to death and having a heart attack, trying to pay all the bills, you just put your hands over your ears and I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Because <laughs> there's evil in your heart. Now that's the good news to find that out if you admit it. If you don't admit it, then that's bad news for you. If you admit it and try to turn around and turn away from those ways of covetousness, that's good news. But if you refuse to see it and continue down that road with no effort to turn around, well, you're going to be on your own. But anyway, this Colonel Douglas McGregor is saying that there's two hundred to $240,000 in debt on all these people. Now, there's a couple of different ways you can calculate that up. And, you know, I could I could do some math and bring that down a little bit. But then, of course, we're talking about inflationary currency. <laughs> and if you owe that much, what's the interest on $240,000? <laughs> I don't think you work fast enough to pay the interest on that. And the fact is, is that Federal, Federal Reserve notes are just credit entries anyway. But the point is, is that the reason the people that were in bondage in Egypt couldn't leave is they had nothing to pay the debt with. And, of course, you go read, uh, go listen to our Exodus uh, series and find out really what Moses was doing there and how Moses was going to get them out. Which, to some degree, some of that will apply to you now. But it's not going to be exactly like that. But in principle, many of those same principles will repeat themselves. So he looks at the average American earns about $31,000 a year. That's it. The average American pays about $16,600 a year in taxes, which is like more than half at making 31000 But, of course, that isn't the way it works because there's a graduated income tax. And if you make... 150000 or $200,000, you're going to pay a lot more if you're making 31000 That's not much more than if you have a family of four. That's pretty darn close to poverty level. I don't know what that would be. I know years ago, poverty level was like $19,000 a year and it's been a lot of and doubled the inflation since then. So it's probably at least 20, 25000 poverty level for a family of four to make 31000 a year. So he he can actually get lots of benefits if you make low enough income and that will amount to what you would have paid in income tax or maybe even a little bit better. But of course that just puts you more and more in debt. And and what you pay in taxes is not paid in taxes to provide you with um you know like you're going to pay it off. They don't want you to pay it off. They want that debt growing all the time. So there's no way out. And actually, there's several forces working here. There's one that simply wants to arrest all the dominion that God gave you, all those inalienable rights. You you can't lose those rights, but you can lose access to them. And one of the ways is debt. 
He said, I have a right to what I earn. Well, not if you're in debt. You know, when the Israelites went into bondage, they went into bondage because they had to make a deal. You feed us. You provide social welfare for us. And we will give you one-fifth of our labor every year. And if they fell behind at all, then that could increase. So, of course, that's exactly where everybody is. They've all gone back into the bondage of Egypt. And it isn't the corporation of the United States that's the problem. It's you. It's because you haven't been doing what Christ said. You haven't been doing what Moses said. If you're a Jew, if you're, even if you're a Muslim, you haven't been listening to Abraham or Moses. So, And certainly not Jesus Christ, who most Muslims consider to be a prophet. So just as a prophet, you haven't been listening to him because you've all been coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. And Christ said it was not to be that way with you. He goes on and he's talking. Now the people in Congress, this doesn't affect them or in the hill or inside the beltway. We talk about the real Americans who live out there scratching out a living. Keep in mind that a person who works all his life and pays his taxes and then finally retires and tries to draw on his social security can expect a monthly payment of probably $1,400. If they're lucky, $1,400. Some will get less. Okay, Then he goes on to say, we had every alleged asylum seeker, illegal migrant pouring into the border of Texas or wherever else. We hand them, uh, we hand them when they get uh, to the border. Actually, sometimes we give it to them even before they cross the border. $2,200. which is $800 more than somebody who worked here all their life. These immigrants coming in, they get $2,200. And they're put on a steady diet of $2,200 every month. They get a card. I've seen the card. They get a card. And they keep funding that card. And they can go anywhere. And they also get free tickets. They get free meals. They get free shelter. They get all kinds of stuff. But they're just raking in the bucks. And then if they make a living stealing on the side, and people say, oh, well, you're thinking all these immigrants are stealing. Well, there's an awful lot of them. Crime is rampant. But uh, the reality is that isn't the real threat. The petty criminals, we could probably handle that. But there's something else going on. Who is behind this plan of giving them $2,200 and retired elderly people, $1,400. And of course, then there's Medicare and Medicaid, but these people are getting operations for free too. From there on out per month, yet somebody works all their life and retires and draws Social Security gets only $1,400. The Afghans who are hanging on to the planes in Kabul trying to come to the United States, when they arrive, they receive $2,200 a month. Now, if you can make sense out of this, please try, because I don't think most Americans can make sense out of this at all. 
And that's one of the reasons people have said, not because they know of anything about the Ukraine, most Americans don't. If they knew anything about the history of the Eastern Europe, they would all say, get out. Because the wars and the blood and the hatred that have been characterized to that part of the world for hundreds of years is something we can't sort out. We can't fix it. We shouldn't try to arbitrate it. We don't know anything about it. That's These are his words. Actually, I do know something about it, but he's right to some degree. But you could say the same thing about Iraq, even more so about Iraq and Afghanistan. Iraq, what is that, 14 different languages in that country? It's not a united group of people. You, If you're going to rule in Iraq and maintain order, you've got to be a dictator. Because there's vast areas of that country that they're not going to get along with anybody. Because they've been in tribal warfare for longer than history can record. But it's an unnatural country created by the United Nations. And, of course, we know now that the United Nations is heavily involved in bringing all these immigrants into America. Why, the United Nations plotted this out? No, there is a plot. What makes sense is the fact that, go back what we talked about in part one, is Cloward and Piven. Bankrupt America by getting as many people on social welfare as they possibly could. Did you realize that a lot of black people were getting off of social welfare? They were starting to see the destructive effects. They were starting to realize that it was breaking down the family. And a lot of them were trying to do something about it, and valiantly so. But others, you know, they were raised in this. They don't know any better. They're certainly not going to learn about it in public school. But then again, all those people in the their journal, I almost said society, it's not called a society, but whatever, assembly. They don't get how a republic works. I think that a republic is a representative form of government where you still get to take away from your neighbor when you want more stuff. No. No, that's not peaceably assembling. That's exercising authority one over the other. Christ said, it's not to be that way with you. So if you think you should be that way, you don't know what a pure republic is. You don't know how you, your, your neighbor's not going to be free from your assembly. But the beautiful thing is, if you are seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, whatever that means, that means that you, you start homeschooling and, and you create private schools with mutual effort. And you, I know of guys who are actually building local roads. There's local roads in our own county uh, where they were, uh, taking care of, you know, the the county could take care of certain roads. They're dedicated roads. If my guest shows up here, we can talk about that. I thought I saw his car out there, but uh, there's somebody out there. But anyway, uh, there are roads that aren't dedicated roads and aren't taken care of by the county. The people all want... Why don't the county come and take care of our roads? Why don't you take care of your roads? That's the way we used to do it in America when we were a republic only. (laughs) 
And so if the general society wants to do that, we can do that. Uh, but uh, I don't know if they want to do that. They they want to take they want to take over the reins of control of government because they don't like the way the other guys are doing it. But they're not peaceable unless they're actually following the ways of Christ. And the ways of Christ is that to be that government of the people for the people and by the people is to do everything through charity, which strengthens the militia. Which the militia isn't a military force. It can become one if attacked. You know, but that isn't the purpose of the militia. If it was building schools and roads back there in Virginia and bridges, then what was the militia? It was the people. It was actually still today in the U.S. codes, militia is defined as every able-bodied man between the ages of uh, 17 and 45. I think it's 45. And, you know, if there's a fire, they show up. So you call them militia, well, why don't you just call them the fire department? If there was a flood, why don't we just call them flood control? You can call them militia if you want. But uh, we like to call them FEMA. <laughs> of course, it doesn't stand for the same thing the United States government has. I have a hat over there that says FEMA. But it's his church FEMA, Faith Emergency Ministry Auxiliary. See, in order to create those social bonds of a free society, you have to show up for your neighbor. You have to help one another. That's what creates the bonds. That's what creates the trust. Israel knew this. Moses knew this. This is why he was, he set up his altars, free will offerings. That's what they call. What did you put on the on the altars? Of course, you can go read our articles on the altars of clay and stone they were they weren't piles of rocks and dirt they were systems of social welfare they started uh, Jehovah Nisi the altar of Jehovah Nisi after they had a fight with the, the Amaleks why did they have to start that altar then well there was a lot of wounded veterans which of course uh, McGregor goes into that talking about the wounded and we, we are absolutely th this whole thing. And if you thought there was something wrong with what they were deciding and telling you you needed to do because of COVID, I can guarantee you they're telling you more lies to do with Ukraine. They're absolutely devastating the Ukraine. They could have brought this to a peaceful end easily without a shadow of a doubt. They could have done that. They did everything they could to cause this war. I could go through it step by step, but you, if you don't see it already, you probably won't believe it. But we told you about COVID before they even created the vaccine. We showed you studies that showed that any vaccine was going to cause harm because of the power of the spike protein, because there were already studies put together. We, we published the study when it was still in the preliminary stages. And the study came out of Washington, D.C. The information was all available, but you're not seeing it because you're not led by the Holy Spirit. But if you're listening to us on a regular basis, well, I would suspect the Holy Spirit is at least telling you to do that. And I think a lot of you are starting to hear it more and more. But Christ said you had to be a doer of the word. And that's because when you're a doer of the word, it opens up doors 
so that you will hear from the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, that's what you want. You don't want to follow me. You want to follow that comforter, the Holy Spirit. And I've mentioned the word comforter specifically because we may again get to that eventually. But this whole idea of social welfare through the government, they started in Australia. They started destroying the Australian power grid before they started doing it in the United States. They're a lot farther along in Australia. But, of course, they started social welfare through the government in Australia long before they started it here. It was kind of their they what they learned. Some of the same people were involved in it in the United States and in Australia because they're working together, same people. And there are, there are people, you know, World Economic Forum, George Soros, and all these guys. They're funding a lot of this stuff. You know, like, why is he getting DAs to release all the criminals and then spending millions and millions of dollars to bogusly charge businessmen who got a loan from a bank, and the bank was tickle pink, wants to loan them more money, wants to do business with them, but somehow or other he's being charged with some kind of fraud. In order to have fraud, I mean, you just look up the definition of fraud. You have to actually defraud somebody. Now, yeah, if you give false information that leads to the defrauding of somebody, that giving of the false information is a crime. But if nobody got defrauded, there was no loss, then there is no fraud. There is no crime of fraud. Just because you were inaccurate about something, but it never led to defrauding anybody of anything, and all the parties still want to do business with you, and they're tickle pink. As a matter of fact, they said he was better at paying back the debt than most people. And I can't understand why you would even think about prosecuting him. Well, of course, we know why. But we also know, if you read Cloward and Piven, they tell you. Bankrupt the system with getting as many people as possible on government dole. So they're importing them. The United Nations is helping fund these people coming in. Now, it's not just people that put them on welfare. I saw a guy interviewing numerous people from Syria, all military-age men. They're still wearing military equipment, tactical equipment. And they're coming into this country. And you ask them, why are they coming? And you can tell they're lying. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they claim, well, I can't really speak English. But the, what they did say, you say, that guy, you can see him rehearsing the lie in his face, if you're any good at telling who's lying. And, of course, it's the same way with the thousands and thousands of Chinese coming in here. Yeah, I used to always wonder, you know, the Bible talks about America being invaded in the last days. I'm, they're not the last days of the planet, but in this later days. You know, it was predicted in 600 B.C. by somebody who was physically taken to the future and explains what he saw. It's in the text. I've, we talked about it at some of the festivals that we have here, and we can look it up again, and I could give you the number, but I'll just leave you. But he describes, this is the, what he's describing is the days of trucks and jet airplanes, and he's describing it right in the Bible, very clearly. But he's also describing who's coming. I see them coming across the border right now. <laughs> They're coming. 
But I don't want you to be afraid of that. I want you to repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, including the, the general folks, the general assembly. I think it's great to assemble, but peaceably assemble, which is according to the ways of Christ. And the beauty is you don't need a majority. You think you're going to get a majority of people? You think you're going to get a majority of the people that are going to want to break away from Oregon and become a part of Idaho or create another state? Majority's not going to do that. They're, they're, that's too frightening. But you don't need a majority if you do it the way Christ said, if the way Moses said, the way that Abraham said. You'll need many souls. You'll need courageous souls. You'll need peaceable souls that are strong in character. But you don't need a majority vote because the kingdom of God is not a majority vote. Now, when Moses came out of Egypt, he came with more than Israelites. He came with Egyptians. And when Abraham came out of Haran, he came with many souls. And there were probably all kinds of different people mixed in with them. And certainly other people joined Israel, joined Abraham. Because we see the record shows that. It's not a bloodline. It's the people willing to live by faith, hope, and charity. Peaceably. But, you know, I'm a peaceful guy. When push comes to shove, I'm still pretty peaceful. But I wouldn't push your luck too far. <laughs> uh, when I was in the military, there was a guy who pushed his luck too far. <laughs> But uh, he actually, he ended up backing down at the last minute. And it was a good thing because uh, my next move was going to be disastrous for him. <laughs> there was actually a couple of guys. They're always looking for a fight in the military. But we we digress. So let's go back to, uh, in my notes, you know, I talk about the $2,200 as he said, uh, Illegal immigrants and people who lived and worked in America all their lives getting. Uh, oh, he says, oh, he said this in, a, in several different places, uh, $1,700 or less. And what Americans get because becomes less valuable due to the overspending and the consequences in the form of inflation. This all comes about because the modern church, this is me, uh, because the modern church and their ministers and their pulpits are blind to the fact that you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other, but call themselves benefactors. You're not to be that way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But they all tell you to go to men who exercise authority and get benefits, even though you know they're not giving you anything except what they take away from your neighbor or take away from the future of your children, which is cursing your children. That simple, not complicated. But the modern Christian has developed an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by the way of a rule of force and violence through civil government. The people having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others and depend for their livelihood on the property of others 
have degenerated and will continue to degenerate into perfect savages. And they will end up with another monarch and a king ruling over them. And unless the general assembly that we talked about in the first part sees that and repents of that, they're not going to get anywhere. Galatians 5.15 says, But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. But we chose to do exactly that with the exercising authority of rulers, of the civil government, that we use the teeth of the civil government to bite our neighbors. Your parents did it, and they've cursed you with debt. Are you willing to pay the debt? Do you have to pay the debt? Is there a way out without having to shell out all that money? Well, eventually there will be because you're not going to pay the debt. But all you have to do is wake up enough to walk with the way of God and wake up enough to incur the wrath of Pharaoh and let that nature take its course. Now, knowing this, it's not the Pharaoh who's making the plot. He doesn't know that if he plots against the righteous, he will be destroyed. He doesn't know. But the guy who's really behind all this, he wants you all to destroy each other. And you would eventually all destroy each other. In that interview, McGregor talks about the fact that we may go to nuclear if we keep going this way. He points out that 400,000 men have been killed uh, or lost in battle. We're talking about 300 to 350,000 a few months ago. But the last month of this supposed counteroffensive, which was to sweep the battlefield, they lost at least 40,000 killed. We don't even know how many people have been wounded, but we know the probability upwards to 40 to 50,000 soldiers are now amputees in that country. You're devastating the country. You're talking about supporting them. No. You could have ended this. It's so clear you could have ended this to begin with. But some people want to believe that Putin was going to march all the way through to Poland and Germany and take them all. He doesn't have the ability to do that. Not in his lifetime. You know, I, I, you know, I don't trust him. I mean, he's a dictator too. But you try to rule Russia any other way than being a dictator. After, after years of communism, the, the black market and the Russian mafia, she don't want to mess with them. It's a big country. Uh, you, but he, he's made some good moves. But uh, the reality is I think you could have easily talked him out of this. They were, Like I said, they were doing everything they could to goad him into this uh, quagmire. And, uh, but even if we got them to stop in the Ukraine, form some sort of peaceful coalition, uh, you know, a, a neutral zone, and then, you know, all the people who speak Russian over there on the Russian side, they get to be, you know, Eastern Ukraine. <laughs> and, uh, 
and all the guys over in the western Ukraine, and then the guys in central Ukraine become an you know, a demilitarized zone. You can't be bringing any, and then you get all of NATO equipment out of Ukraine. And and you can, we can watch Russia from the sky and we can see them pull back their equipment. Yeah, I mean, it'd be easy. I, I doubt it would be difficult at all. Your present regime, whether they should be there or not, they are there. And you can't do anything about it because you've lost the social bonds of a true republic and a free society. And you've lost them because you've, for the last 100 years, you've had a steady diet of legal charity, of the government providing you with schools, welfare for your parents, welfare for the true needy of society, because there are some true needy of society. But it's gotten so, they want these tent cities. They they want these drug-infested, disease-infested areas. I mean, my son deals with the homeless every day, every day, my oldest son. And he talks about, you know, this guy is, you know, he's homeless, he's a nice guy, he's cooperative, you know, and he said lots of good things about it. But then other guys, they try to knife you when you come by. It's a crazy place. It, full of savages. But, of course, that's what you get. That's what Polybius told you 150 years even before Christ. That that's what you get if you go this way of legal charity. So you need to repent of that. But uh, he goes on points out Russia still has 300,000 uh, combat troops that he hasn't even used. And I know a lot of the equipment he has been using isn't their best equipment. And they're... They're making money. The ruble has gone up. So uh, we're the ones that are losing money. But, of course, that's the whole idea. And the idea that somehow we're going to go to attack a nuclear weapon that says if you keep advancing, we'll have to use nuclear weapons. We don't want to go there because the notion that there are so-called tactical nukes, you've heard that expression, oh, that's just a little nuke. So you don't want to do that. You're on the verge of unbelievable war. But meantime, we have the country being invaded by foreign troops. So anyway, I I have posted on YouTube an old interview that I thought was already gone public, and it didn't go public, but I marked it as public. I put in lots of links underneath it. The sound wasn't as good that because it was over Skype and there was some uh, we didn't have as good a connection in those days. And so somewhere we were, you know, when we talked over each other, you lost it. But it's it's very clear and articulate enough. So that's up there. I've um, been working on learning how to do YouTube a little bit more, and hopefully we'll get more and more stuff out. Uh, so what does the kingdom of God look like? This will go into part three. Uh, what goes, what does the kingdom of God look like? How how do we implement that in our day-to-day lives? And of course, the the most common form of government in the history of mankind, you won't know this if you went to public school and studied history, but it's just a fact, and there's books written about it, Enterprise of Law and numerous others. Um, some of them we make reference to on... Uh, uh, at preparing you in our articles on the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But um, 
the reality is is that uh, it, early Christians had it organized in groups of ten, which in early America the militia was organized in groups of ten, and then they had you know an officer or a corporal or somebody who was the head of that little platoon. I mean, platoons are usually still ten men, and uh, even, there's even uh, Burke wrote about. Uh, there's a particular term where he uses a platoon. I've written about it before. I can't, it kind of escapes me the exact verbiage of it. But uh, this is a common way that people organize. Early America, early Israel, we know they were organizing in these tens, hundreds of thousands. Jesus commanded that his disciples make the people organize in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, in ranks of tens, hundreds, and thousands, which means specific groups. You knew you were in this group and was connected to that group through this minister, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I've shown how that works. And I'm going to give you a little bit of insight here in part three of this, how that works. And so anyway, I'm going to put a little bit in here. So part two is talking about the destruction of an entire nation. And it's not just the Ukraine that is being destroyed, but it is the United States that is being destroyed because you're depleting the money, running up the debt. You're going to be, the the inflation momentum is building with every foolish trillion dollars they spend. And of course, we're spending at home and we're spending abroad and they're printing money like mad and, uh, they're going to bring the banking system down. The number of banks that have closed in the last few months, is astounding. The number of wealthy people selling off certain assets, Bezos selling off, all these guys, they're bailing out of the economy. They're putting their money elsewhere because they know there's going to be an absolute economic collapse. You've been killing your small farmers. You need to start doing community-supported agriculture and all this stuff. But you need to form a network so you can find out who you can trust and who you can't trust, who will actually show up to be there for one another, to create those social bonds of a free society where you can actually form a government of the people for the people and by the people when this government collapses. But if you – and, of course, that's what Christ was saying. So that's what part three is going to be about is how you do that. And so we, we've got a, the network at Preparing You, and there's network links that will lead you to that at hisholychurch.org. And those network links are to get you to join a Google group based on geography. Like if you're in Oregon, there's, there's a Google group that covers Oregon. It actually covers Oregon, Idaho, and Washington, even Alaska. But you join that group, and you're on that group, and the idea is to find other people in your area. If you join that group and you don't find somebody else in that area, in your area right now, then help us get the word out as to the true solution to your salvation to Christ is doing what he said. And that's what we're showing you. If you're not organizing the tens, hundreds, thousands, you just go to some church with maybe 500 people or 1,000 people in that church. Then you're not that your minister isn't doing what Christ said to do, which is to command that the people organize themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Even the word "sit down" in the tens, hundreds, and thousands—that 
That word sit down means to organize yourself under this pattern. You know, we, we talk about it in more detail and show you the actual words that are involved in the text. But that's how the early church was organized. It, it was when Constantine put the church together that they didn't do that anymore. They did it somewhat, but it wasn't by Constantine's order, just because everybody knew that's how it works. Teutons knew that's how it worked. Celts knew that's how it worked. They knew that the, even the Romans had organized in that way originally. But then their welfare system became centralized as they pillaged Gaul through Julius Caesar and bought the favor of the people through gifts, gratuities, and welfare, which, of course, is why Plutarch wrote the, the destroyer of Rome and the Roman Republic was he who spread amongst them gifts, gratuities, and benefits. The greatest destroyers of liberty, he writes, is those who do that. And that would be FDR, LBJ, Obama, and anybody else who's offering you special rewards and welfare at the expense of your neighbor, which Peter told you would make you merchandise and make you curse your children. But your, does your pastor tell you that? Hey, no, we don't want to take those benefits from men who exercise authority and call themselves the benefactors. We don't want to do that because Christ forbid that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And all the prophets forbid it. And the Ten Commandments forbids it because we're not to covet what is our neighbor's. And John the Baptist forbid it because you were supposed to take care of one another through charity, not through force. Aren't they telling you that in your church? Well, in your church they may not be, but we're telling you that in his church because that's what he said. So when you start doing that, you can start forming the bonds of a free society. Without that, you have all the general assemblies you, you want. You're not going to go anywhere that's going to make any real difference. Uh, and we show you in advance uh, how, I mean, the plotting behind the scenes. I always knew there was plotting behind the scenes. Heck, my dad knew George Bush when he I, – I met Georgie Bush, the little Georgie Bush, when I was eight years old. <laughs> my dad grew up with Schubert Humphrey, often coming over to his house. His best friend was uh, kind of a step – not a stepbrother. But, uh, Humphrey was adopted into a family, and my dad was really good friends with the brothers in that family. And Humphrey was a little bit older than my dad. But, uh, yeah, uh, when I was going to go into the military as an officer going to Annapolis, I was going to get my appointment from Hubert Humphrey. But I knew behind the scenes that governments were corrupt. My dad had peeked behind the scenes and warned me. <laughs> so, and when I was as young as eight, nine years old, they was telling me this. But, uh, but that's no surprise. If you really study history, it's everywhere. It's not unique. So... But I've come across a number of plots, wrote about them, told you ahead of time, told people in Oregon ahead of time. And people who were trying to restore the republic, at least that's what they claimed to me, I showed them how they were going to they're going to bring in more graft and corruption than we've had in Oregon in 20, 30 years if you let them pass this. But they didn't want to stop it because the representative they liked who was breaking the law would get have to step down 
of course, all the other. <laughs> I only know one guy in the government who actually turned down the money. There's probably more than one, but I only know one guy in the Oregon government who was offered these kinds of bribes or illegal in the Oregon Constitution until you guys let them pass another law and re. Uh, rewrote the Constitution just a few years ago. Go look up Article 2, Section 22. We tell you the whole thing. We show you how they laid it out, fooled everybody because you're ignorant, because you don't understand how the government of the people for the people and by the people works. And in Part 3 here, we're going to tell you. And it works by the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But those tens, hundreds, and thousands, it's elder-driven from the bottom up. It's not from the top down. So the elders have to have a spiritual insight into what's going on. They have to have a second sense about it. Instead, they they follow blind guides who say, oh, America is the greatest country, and they, all this boastfulness, and it's them, it's those other guys that are doing it wrong. No, it's you who are doing it wrong. So how do we awaken so that we see the bad things coming? I mean, like, how did I know about Article 2, Section 22? God led me to it. He showed me what was going on, or Measure 14. I showed and uncovered that now. I don't know if that's completely rolled back. I have a video on another uh, bill that they were trying to pass, 2238. I don't know what's become of that. But uh, maybe we're going to shift to part four. (laughs) Because somebody's coming in the door. But we'll have to test his mic. And... uh, But... uh, Oh, I just turned that on. Now I hear more of an echo. That headset should work. But I don't even know if you need the headset because we're not getting But we might get questions. There are callers. So, um, anyway, uh, going down here, looking at my notes. Anyway, what uh, one thing I want to talk about is faith and pull that sound down for a second until you're ready. Uh, Faith and Logos, we were going through the book of John and the book of John mentions the Logos probably more than any of the other books. And it also mentions faith a great deal. And so what is faith? We A lot of people think that faith is believing in something that you can't see or don't understand. You know, and there are churches out there who want to talk about this doctrine and that doctrine. You say, well, I don't get it. What does that mean? What is, how does that make sense? And they say, well, it's a mystery. You're not expected to understand it because it's a mystery. But that's not what faith is. Faith is not believing something blindly. Jesus talks about the blind leading the blind, and now you're you got churches out there telling you, that uh, oh, we want you to believe in this and this and this and this, and it doesn't make any sense to you, but you're just supposed to blindly believe in it. And we call that blind belief faith. That's not faith. <laughs> any more than, than an idiot is a man of courage. You know, I mean, people say, well, like, 
what is the old saying, the Irish saying, if you're able to keep your head while everybody else is losing theirs? You know, I mean, that sounds like somebody who's very courageous. He's able to keep his head while everybody else is losing their minds. Well, the Irish saying is, if you're able to keep your head while everybody else is losing theirs, you probably don't know what's going on. (laughs) But the courageous man who knows what's going on, he sees the danger. He's afraid even, but he goes forward anyway because he's a man of courage. He's willing to face danger even the threat of loss of his own life to do what is deeply rooted in himself. He's willing to do that. And that, that is courage. Well, faith is believing in what you don't necessarily see clear evidence of, but it doesn't mean that it's blind faith. So, let me give you an example of of faith. Now, there was the Logos. And, of course, you know, the Word of God, you know, they talk about it, and the Word was made flesh, and it dwelt among us, and they use this word, word, all the time. But it's actually the Greek word Logos, and we've explained that the Greek word for word is normally Rima, but they have this other word, Logos, which doesn't mean word. It could be translated word sometimes, depending on the context, but basically it means right reason. It's um, Jesus makes sense. Somebody was just talking to me in Australia about somebody who was hearing the explanation of the kingdom of God, and they had a pretty rough background, and they said, that makes sense. When they heard the explanation that was coming out of his church to somebody, I can't remember who it was who was actually explaining this, but they're saying that that makes sense. Great. That's because it's the logos. It's right reason. So they know it makes sense. They know that what other people are telling them doesn't make sense as much. So which way do they go? Well, that will be up to them. But one way might make them feel more comfortable. Right reason might be a little scarier sometimes. You start seeing how much danger we're facing. So do you have the faith, the courage to follow the right reason, the explanation given to us by God? Do you have Enough understanding, enough faith, enough written in your heart. Now, also remember that true faith is a gift from God, just like understanding right reason. It's not an intellectual thing. It it will involve the intellect, but you don't arrive at right reason because you're really, 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 really smart. You arrive at right reason because God writes it upon your heart and your mind. It's the same way that faith is a gift. But faith, is an action word. It's not just what you believe. It's what compels your action. It's very close to what we sometimes call courage and meaning because you're willing to face the dangers that the truth brings 
And when you're willing to face that danger, and not just for yourself, but for your neighbor, you may be willing to have that faith together with others. And this is what binds the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And, of course, one of the tests of that is you have to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. You have to forgive your neighbor. You have to test that forgiveness by giving to your neighbor in a way that strengthens him. And these are all the things that Christ talked about. And that's what creates the social bonds of a free society. Not ideologies. But clearly the logos of Christ is a form of ideology, but it's not invented by men. It's right reason. It's, it is the word of God. It is the right reason of God. It's not just an opinion. It's actually what it is. And I can talk about that, but I can't tell you what that is 100%. That's an individual journey, alone, by yourself, but also together with others. Because the two major commandments, you have to love God, this giver of life, this giver of right reason, this giver of the reasonableness of creation, And you have to love your neighbor as yourself, which, of course, means that you have to love yourself a little bit to begin with, but you have to be willing to care about your neighbor equally to yourself and your neighbor's children equal to your own children. And when you gather in the tens, hundreds, of thousands, especially during times of adversity, you get to test that daily. And you'll find that you fall short daily, and it will be a humbling experience. But in that day, God will enlighten you even more so absolutely essential to gather in the tens hundreds and thousands we're going to have more and more programs that try to flesh that out so that we can understand what that looks like because i know a lot of people that are trying to do that they they focus on the number 10 and not on the social bonds and where they come from and But it is ground up, always think in terms of ground up, and you'll be surprised how easy it is to fall into the idea that somehow or other it's top down, that somehow or other your minister has authority over you. He does not. He has only authority over that which you give him. And he has authority over the way in which he handles that energy that God gives him. So he can reject somebody as a minister, but he cannot bar the other members of the congregation from the other congregants. You can't cast people out in that sense because it's a free assembly. You don't have any authority to cast people out of a free assembly. If you had that authority, it's not a free assembly anymore. So you have to let them gather and make that choice and work out those disagreements with fear and trembling and trust in the Lord to cast out those people who need to be cast out, not not us. So anyway, we'll talk more about that another time. We do have a guest in here, and uh, he was relating his adventures in the in the capital of Oregon, which if the Juro people ever listen to this program, (laughs) even though we're in part four, um, might be interested in because he's seen it from the inside and he's also seen it from a kingdom perspective. And uh, 
he came across some interesting things. And it's not unique. The corruption that he uncovered, which I, I can only really call it corruption, and the people who were corrupt in the, this, they don't think they're corrupt because they see it as business as usual. Just the same as people who covet their neighbor's goods to the government, desiring those dainties, those rulers of the dainties of rulers, the benefits from men who exercise authority, the benefits from men who of government who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority, which Christ forbid. All these churches out there, they think that's okay now. They don't think that's immoral. It is immoral. The Bible states that it's immoral, that it's a sin, it's a covetous practice, but they don't see it. Our, we can be accusatory all the time, say, oh, you wicked people, you wicked here, you wicked there. And they may be workers of iniquity, but we're not exercising authority. We, we can't cast out. We leave judgment to God. We're just telling you what we see, what God is writing on our hearts. You have to figure out where you stand because it's back to that individual walk. So anyway, we'll, we'll start out. Uh, this guest, uh, I've known him all his life. <laughs> Those of you who listen regularly, it's, it's my son, uh, James. And uh, he was busy somewhere else, and he finally made it in. I was going to look at where's our clock at. Oh, we got lots of time. And I only wanted to do work on this for maybe a half hour. Uh, it's a, it was a long story when he first told it, but of course he's given us all the little bits and pieces of it. But he, he even turned to me one time and he says, I have to figure out how to shorten this up. So this will be the chance <laughs> to shorten it up. But anyway, I got to turn on his mic and check sound levels here. Uh, so, James, yeah, you're ready to go? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, okay, I think I got you up too high. Okay. Yeah, it might okay. be a tad bit. Yeah. I'll, uh, I may have mine up too high, too. So, we'll look at – I'm looking at the sound levels. Go ahead and say a little bit more. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Okay. Sounding, sounding okay? Yeah, it's, it's okay. I, right. if we, as long as we don't hit the peaks, I can always magnify okay. it a little bit. But anyway, you had a recent experience. Uh, you're you're county commissioner in Lake County, mm-hmm. and you're also kind of the liaison to the state legislature. You're the one that seems to go up there more mm-hmm. than the other two commissioners. And uh, I've learned a lot during the time that he's been learning this about Oregon government. The counties used to run a lot more than they do today. They've Over the years, they've been turning power over to the state government. Things that used to be decided down on the local level are now decided by the state. Uh, county commissioners used to be the chief health officer in the county. They weren't going around telling people to wear masks or anything, but if there was something that threatened the health of the community, they were supposed to be on it, take it to the community, and figure out what they were going to do about it. When you put that in the hands of the state, uh, especially if you live in a county like ours, it's way away from the state capital. You can get pretty neglected. Sometimes these days, with the decision that the state is often making, being neglected is a good thing. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Actually, that's a really good point. And sometimes it's nice to fly under the radar and not necessarily be um, the center of attention. But when the whole ship is about ready to go down, flying under the radar don't save it. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
you, you can you can do things sometimes to prepare and to prepare your people for what you see coming down the track. Um, but uh, all in all, it, it the best strategy is to find those other men and women in those leadership roles to stand up and uh, stand up with you um, because you know. I guess suicide isn't necessarily in my uh, in my plan, and uh, there's a lot of hills you could die on. Um, I heard a saying just this morning. There was a cowboy poetry uh, thing uh, on the radio, and they were going through all these famous cowboy quotes, and one of them was, uh, "An eagle may soar, but last I checked." Uh, squirrels and weasels don't get sucked into jet engines. And uh, I thought it was just this like laid back uh, cowboy who made this comment, you know, that uh, um, ambition is uh, one of the most pathetic excuses for not being lazy. Um, and I, I thought, well, it's just, just, they, they were all these interesting little quotes. Um, but I, uh, I found I have found, at least in in my position, that if I can't get uh, men and women in those moments where we look around ourselves and we realize that not all of our countrymen actually want to be free, um, and uh, that's exactly why we find ourselves in the situation of um, the state government and more and more having more and more authority. Uh, you mentioned being the health officers for the county. We're the health authority for the counties, and um, we've retained that for the most part. There are several counties of the 36 counties in the state of Oregon that have given up their authority um, and given it back to the state for managing both their public health offices and mental health um, uh, offices. And we've seen uh, where uh, mental health rules and regulations coming down to the government where you can suddenly get uh, diagnosed with some minor mental health uh, situation and they're trying to make it so they can take your guns away because you've been declared or you actually, I know of where that's happened, mm-hmm. where people have submitted themselves. That's a great example. Uh, of to a psychiatric examination because they were under duress and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was just a short period of time after a death in the family. And uh, the next thing you know, that they, they're they not allowed to buy a gun in yeah. some states. Just but because they sought help. Sought help. And they were going through things. Like, who doesn't go through things in life? Yeah. And they have hard times. And there's not always, you know, that family unit around you. I've been lucky enough for the most part in life to be surrounded by a good family. But even then, you know, I've sought help from time to time, you know, and went to go find someone to talk to, a, another pastor or minister or someone else that I looked up to in life that wasn't necessarily part of my family unit. And you go through things and chapters in your life sometimes and severe depression and so forth, and you should be able to seek help. But where in the world should it come down to you losing your a right to defend yourself and protect your family. Um, and, and you can see how there is potential there for that to be used against someone in a very um, uh, reptilian way. And, and that's why, you know, I think it's important that each county in, at least within the system of government that we currently have in this country, 
um, maintain that local jurisdiction and authority. I think it would be fantastic in a more perfect world where people uh, took that authority back from the government in general, including the counties. But we don't know how to do that, and we 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 haven't been um, we haven't been working in the fields at night for our our straw for a very long time. We've we've been putting things back on the counties. We've been putting those counties have been putting things back on the state. A lot of it is because of restrictions and laws that have come down from the state, going back to the 16th Amendment, where we started to see um, taxes being imposed on the people just in the last hundred years. And um, and we and when we say taxes imposed on the people, the majority of those were the people instituting those taxes, levying taxes against their neighbor. We can say it's the government, and yes, the counties have an assessor's office that, for the most part, is responsible for collecting the taxes and distributing them to the different taxing districts within the counties. But how did those taxing districts come into existence through votes of the people? The people are the ones that are actually instituting these taxes and requiring them and requesting them and asking the government to take on more and more responsibility. And then the state steps in and they say, well, we actually know more than you, and we could probably do this better. And we're going to require through equity, inclusivity, and diversity, we're going to require you to do this, X, Y, and Z. We want your DAs to do this. We want your programs to look like this and as to ensure that uh, people on drug, uh, people that have drug addictions and people who commit crimes are treated just the same as the people who don't have drug addictions and substance abuse disorders and don't commit crimes. And then you have, because we want equality. So there's all these requirements that states are putting on you and they want to have you want to make sure every county has a DA, every county has this, they all have a treatment court, they all have this. And so the counties were put in this very tough situation, especially in rural Oregon and rural America, really, where they said, well, we don't have the money. And that's an unfunded mandate. How can we hire someone? You know, we're, we can barely hire anyone to take the minutes of our meetings. You know, in order to maintain transparency and keep record. Uh, and so they said that's an unfunded mandate. It's illegal in this state. So if you want us to do that, you're going to force us to do that, you have to pay for it. And the state, of course, said, well, we'd be happy to oblige as long as we maintain the authority over it as well. Because if you eat at Caesar's table, he will have a demand on you. And so they, the state does pay for it, and by paying for it, they also happen to have a certain amount of authority over how these programs are instituted. And that's why you see mental health offices and public health offices um, pushing state agendas. Which is why David said, and Paul in the New Testament quoted him, what should have been for their welfare has become a snare and a trap. Hmm. And this is also what we talked about, this general assembly group who want to restore the republic and all this stuff. And they refer to themselves as peaceably assembling. Well, if they still intend to provide public education through taxing their neighbor and threatening to take their neighbor's house away from them, still intend to impose inheritance tax on widows and orphans, uh, then they're not peaceably assembling. Right. They're they're not necessarily assembling with guns in their hands, but they've got a sheriff's department that will bring guns mm-hmm. to the neighbor's house to take that house away if they don't pay for what these guys want. That's not a republic. Yeah. And if they don't understand that, then 
they're blowing smoke. But now recently you were down there and you came across a bill that was uh, – it still hasn't passed, but no. it was being proposed. And it was about taking power that was in the hands of the state at the moment, seems to be in the hands of the state at the moment, but we can talk about where that power came from. And this, the state was relinquishing that power. Not to the people like the Ninth and Tenth Amendment says. They were relinquishing that power to the federal government and corporate interests. Mm -hmm. And so you came across this bill, and maybe you can tell them a little bit briefly, not the entire process, but at least give them a feel. I probably should not talk about the entire process. Um, the uh, because I still haven't figured out a way to shorten the story all that much, so I'm gonna just hit some of the highlights. And if someone wants to know more, maybe if they come to the Burning Bush Festival, we'll get around the campfire and I can explain the rest of the story, um, as Paul Harvey you would say. Um, I got involved in it because uh, the bill came forward and uh, a bunch of commissioners across the state thought that I might have something to do with it and that I might have played a part in writing it simply because of the subject matter being land use. And uh, land use has been the bane of my existence ever since I've taken office. Um, because, and it's such an interesting little piece, especially in the state of Oregon, where you can see um, – you know, all the, the neighbors and private property owners in the state that, um, you know, they get their little slice of heaven. And the minute they have a neighbor that moves in and wants to do something on their land, they they all of a sudden want the government to take their those people's rights away. So they show up at meetings and land use and so forth. And this is just something that I've dealt with personally. And uh, as such, I've become somewhat of um, a strong voice on these matters of land use especially around energy development and uh, solar development and solar energy is becoming a big thing in our society today, wind and renewable energy in general. And uh, there's this conversation around putting some of these renewable energy sites on public land. Now I've been in the rooms where there's been some very heated opinions about what people can and can't do on their private land. Um, so I, uh, is that better? Yeah, just, okay. So, and that can get quite intense. It can get very intense uh, for uh, um, neighbors, people who have known each other their whole lives. Suddenly, I don't want to see solar on your land. And it's like, well, I want to put it there. And I want to put some of it there. I don't have any other options. You know, I mean, the, you know, the tribes and the state government came in and took away all my water rights and I can't put any irrigation or any crops on it. So why can't I put solar on it and diversify my income and still have something coming in and put my land to use? Oh, sorry. No, you can't do it. And uh, because we don't want to look at it. Yeah, it's basically and, and, the neighbor is taking away the right of his neighbor and, and it, to do it, what he wants with his property. It's a societal issue. Yeah. It's, it's systemic and and it's very prevalent. Now you have this conversation around energy development potentially on federal land, uh, BLM land or, or so forth. We, we call it BLM land or federal land. It shouldn't technically be owned by that state, but they are the um, stewards of that land, those federal agencies. So what happens if someone builds something on federal land? Well, currently in the state of Oregon, and we're not the only state that does this, but um, there's a number of states that don't do it this way, 
if the federal government go through what they call a NEPA, and I think it's the National Environmental Protection Act, I think is what the acronym stands for. But if they go through a NEPA and an evaluation and um, a full uh, listing of everything that that land holds on it, and it's like a land use application in a way, uh, they can potentially cite it if they go through the federal process. But if they do it within the state of Oregon, they still have to go through the Oregon process, through the state citing or land use citing authority, uh, which is something we call FSEC. Um, and I forget the actual acronym. It's Energy Citing Council. Um, but this bill came forward, and what it did was it took the authority away from that siting council and the state siting authority to where they would not have to go through that siting process as well. If they went through the federal process, that was it. And the state would simply acquiesce or adopt or, you know, through no motion at all whatsoever um, that, uh, yep, sounds good. And I just thought that was insane. And it was a state agency that actually reached out to me to, to ask me, uh, if I knew anything about it, and I said, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I haven't read this bill. And so he sent it to me, and I looked at it and read it, and uh, I immediately just – my hackles got up, and I was like, no, I don't want to do this. So this whole – a whole process evolved from this, and it involved me going to the state capitol and speaking with commissioners across the whole state, and I jumped into action to try and figure out how I could fix this bill. We, I spoke with every sponsor of the bill, and I couldn't understand. And this was one element. I'll just briefly touch on this. Several of the, co the chief sponsors of the bill were high up ranking Democrats in the uh, House of Representatives. At, at there the were state some Republicans. There were several Republicans that I realized were also on it. So uh, once we realized it was actually a bipartisan bill, I was very puzzled because some of them were my um, legislators. And uh, and I wanted to find out more. Some things just didn't add up, specifically being that this was only affecting land use on federal land. BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, um, maintained land. And the chief sponsors were from districts in downtown Portland and metro areas, and none of them had any BLM land in their entire district. So I was immediately I was like, what does this mean? So I kept asking questions, and I spoke with the actual person who drafted the bill, which was actually an energy company, and uh, I asked more questions. And and I, some of those things weren't transparent at the beginning. None of them. Very few of these things were very transparent. I was on, on a constant... A path of discovery along with a, another lobbyist um, and we were walking around the Capitol together he was a good friend as well as a lobbyist for our county's association and we were asking questions and I had many sidebar conversations with other lobbyists and even had a conversation with a reporter uh, while they're just asking questions really but I got curious because they just didn't add up. Things didn't make sense. And I, after even speaking with all the legislators, getting amendments in that actually, in my opinion, fixed the bill and made the bill better, um, it was uh, – Well, it, it was it, bringing it, some of the power back to the, the county. The amendments, basically, what they did was – and my arguments with legislators was, okay, 
you're giving up this authority. I think the counties need to have more of a seat at the table. And the states and the legislators response was, well, we can't force the federal government to speak and work with the counties. There's already some requirements in their process to do that anyway, but we can't tell them what to do. And I said, well, that's not what I'm asking. My point is, is that you're taking authority away from your state citing authority. You, as a legislature, you're restricting yourself. And, and granted, I have no necessarily love loss for that state citing authority. SEC has lots of problems as a state agency, and I'm not necessarily a huge fan. But I found it not logical to take your local authority away and just cast it to the wind. Well, the, and the states had virtually taken that authority by neglect of the counties mm-hmm. to, to make decisions in the county instead of the county making decisions right. with the people who they actually know. Right, and then they took it and they were planning on just giving it up and and just accepting whatever the feds decide. Yeah. Giving that authority completely up. What a terrible precedent and, and taking it completely out of the local hands. If, if we agree that um, having local discretion is important at the county level, then it should be just as important to have somewhat local authority at the state level. I mean, isn't that what, you know, there's a big part of the civil war with state rights. And right. now you have states that are just giving it up and, and acquiescing to the federal government. And so I thought, okay, no, what I want, what I'm saying is, if you have the ability to take that authority away from the state citing authority and the state council, um, then you should, then you have it in your hand. It's there. So give it back to the counties. And, I'll, and because that's where it should belong. So the amendment that I sought to the bill, and I had Democrats even agree with me because I, I feel like I made a very compelling argument, and I think I was a nuisance to them that day and <laughs> personally. And, the, and eventually several of them actually just said, we will not move the bill forward until the county's concerns are addressed. If you, but you guys need to get some amendments in quick because we'd like to move this bill forward. And I said, okay, sounds good. All right. So we got to work on it. We made some amendments, and we worked with uh, several different issues. This almost all took place in a day. In the morning of one day. Uh, I got to the Capitol the day before, spent the whole day in meetings, and then I promised my association that I would go over and work with staff to try and find a solution. Got there early in the morning the next day. And by noon, when I left the steps and I told everyone I have to be out of here by noon because I plan to drive home today and it's a long way from Salem back to my home and I need to be out of town leaving the Capitol by noon. So you did get the, the amendment, amendment in there. amendment was accepted and it was, it was added. However, uh, and, and that amendment was critical because it does restore that authority back to the counties that no matter what is cited on federal land, state statute dictates that the counties, even if you're not going to run this through a state uh, certificate or permitting process again, you still have to go work with the counties to to work out um, and and look at grazing rights on those lands and acres, which now – you could even make the argument the counties have some say over 
what takes place on that federal land in the way of grazing permits. That affects the county county citizens and the people who depend upon those grazing rights. And then uh, the other was roads because the counties are responsible for maintaining all the roads and the access points to those federal lands, uh, whether it be for recreation or or multi-purpose. The counties are are still at the table for potential road use agreements and mitigation to make developers pay for a portion of those. And they should, in the same way the loggers used to repair and fix the roads for the access to our federal lands in the forest. I think if you're going to develop solar or any kind of um, development on public land and and BLM and open scab and sagebrush land, you should still be making the effort to fix the roads and the access to them. So it puts us in a wonderful position. Normally when they talk about, well, there's already processes where you you have a voice in what the federal government or the Fish and Wildlife or anybody is doing, that voice is usually they go to some complaint meeting, they get three minutes to talk, and then everybody goes about disregarding everything you said. Right. Because you don't have any governmental authority that says, oh, you want to use this for this? you got to pay this. Yeah, usually you're reduced to an advisory role. Yeah. That's and, just the way it's played. And, and basically they don't have to listen to you. So you got that in, but it hasn't been voted on. But the other thing I wanted to get before we run out of time is you noticed, like, you were still trying to figure out why were some of these people who don't even have BLM – ground in their counties and some of these Republican uh, representatives or Democratic representatives even, why were they sponsoring this? And of course, what was in it for them? And you showed me a site that is everybody, you know, I knew about some of these sites because we saw it under when we were dealing with Article 2, Section 22. Yeah, right. uh, That there is well, I can use the word legal bribery going in <laughs> government. It's built into the system. I could use the word too. <laughs> but, you know, like, you know, I've, I could give you all kinds of things. I mean, what are they going to do to me? You know, I'm going to take off a whole bunch of people in Salem and politicians. What are they going to do? Write an article in OPB saying that James Williams is a terrible person? Heck, I'd get reelected just on that. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm very untouchable in that regard, but yeah, I, but the the reality is you're dealing with companies that are putting up half a million dollars uh, in trying to get certain things to pass in certain ways to get, make their business more profitable, maybe at the expense of others. And along comes this County commissioner who just says, well, you're not going to get a free ride. That uh, we're, but the, to me, the critical thing is power that was in the hands of the county, has that the county was willing to give away because it didn't earn that right. It just, it's not responsible. The, uh, the state didn't earn that right, and you got at least a semblance of it right. back in the hands of the county. Small which victory. Is, and this small county, it, the you have a real close contact with the people. So you're either getting bigger as a government entity of force and power, or you're getting smaller as a government of force and power. And I think the latter is much more of a step in the direction of the kingdom. And we we saw that with COVID. Mm -hmm. 
where they tried to mandate things in this county. And, of course, there's always people who go oh, along I'm, with it. I, I was hated by many of the reporters for the Oregon Public Broadcasting and other um, larger press um, in the state because I called them out on a bunch of their nonsense during the COVID thing. I, I mean, I went and, and argued that their articles were hit jobs to try and single out and go after counties that wouldn't institute the mandates in the same way that people were in the metro area. I had, for an example, I mean, during the COVID crisis, and I don't want to derail too much, but this just goes to show you the the absolute insanity uh, of the far left and of certain interest groups in the state that was pushing these requirements. Um, We had what you would call a breakout of uh, COVID. Um, we had one person in my county of 8,000 people with over 8,000 square miles of land for the definition of social distancing before it was a term. We had one person who was a kid, a student, that received COVID. And because he supposedly got COVID, he didn't really, I don't know, he had, um, and uh, I think he was even asymptomatic, but he tested positive. Yeah. So, I know, we won't go down that (laughs) hole, but he tested positive, even though we know Coca-Cola could probably test positive. So, he gets this, and they quarantine his family. They, I say they, they just recommend he go home and quarantine with his family. No one forced him to, but he went home, and he went on quarantine. And that number was reported to public health that, okay, we have this person and his family. Well, the, the, the family was large. It's a young student, and there are 11, 12 kids in the family. It was a large Christian family. And... <laughs> So mom, dad, and all these other kids were home during this time because one of their kids was asymptomatic and tested positive. None of the other kids ever got sick. The parents never got sick, to my knowledge. And the reason I know this is because I know the family. The dad works for me. And, and I, so I'm sitting there thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. Um, but what makes matters worse the state, Oregon Public uh, Broadcasting, or OPR, or whatever, they run this big article on, in the paper, and they say, you know, spikes 120% in Lake County because they don't impose the, manda- the mandates and the lockdowns, and all their restaurants are still open, and look at them, look, they're looking terrible. Well, we had no cases, and then all of a sudden we had one kid that got sick, and he went home, and it was, it was just a complete bamboozle. They were using the whole metric to make it look like we had people dying. And the article actually said that people are dying in Lake County. And I thought, <laughs> nonsense. I mean, yes, people are dying. We have one of the, lar- the most aged populations per capita in rural Oregon because there's a lot of older families here that once, when you age, you stay because there's, you, don't, you don't go anywhere because you're too far away from family at that point. And there's a lot of old Irish families here that take care of mom and dad when they get older. So you have a lot of those folks, those elderly folks that stay here. We had the same thing when they said we had half our black population in jail. Correct. Right. Fifty percent of our African-American population was in jail. We had two guys in the whole (laughs) county. There were two guys. One of them was the Swans man. One of them got arrested for a DUI. Yeah. And he was in jail overnight. Yeah. 
Yeah. He got he, and it got bailed out because we had too many white guys in there and we needed to open up a cell. You were actually at a meeting. I was somebody. at a meeting and it was at the Oregon State University and they pulled that out and that statistic was on a piece of paper in this giant binder showing what they wanted to show and they were giving us this big lecture on Latin X at the time. And uh, I actually walked out of the room with a number of other commissioners, and we just walked out. Um, and uh, it was just nonsense. But, yeah, they actually had that in their, um, uh, like, pamphlet portfolio thing that they had these little binders they were handing out. And you could look at all the different statistics of each county. And I got to Lake County, and I was like, oh, my gosh, we are so racist. <laughs> and, and Except he knew the story. I, I knew the story. I knew how many people we had here, and I can't help the fact that we only had two African American gentlemen in our county. We actually time. have a lot more. We now. have a lot more now, but at that particular <laughs> point in time, which I think it was like 1995, 1997, there was two black guys in the whole county, and it, it's just an old Irish community of full of Irish immigrants. It's not that anyone was racist. Our Swans man was here for years. He loved it. We yeah. used to invite him in for coffee and cookies and everything. There's not that's not the issue. It's just. You you either love it or you hate it if you live in a place like this. And it just so happened there's a lot of people that love but it. But they would have got by with that statistic had somebody not been called them out on it. and called them out. On right. It. And this is this is the thing is you know like we we called them out on Article Two Section Twenty Two. We call them out on uh, Measure One Fourteen and all this stuff. But the ignorance and this is the same as I'm calling out that general assembly that they don't really know what a republic is. They, they, I, they, I'm not saying that they're not noble in their intent, but we could help them actually understand a real strategy. But in order to have a real strategy, you have to have the logos, right reason. Mm-hmm. In order to have right reason, you have to have right facts. And uh, sometimes obtaining those facts requires a little bit of effort. We're certainly not going to get them from the news people. We need to be that source. And the more you network together where you can share facts and find out information, the, the better off you are. Uh, I remember we did, a, we did a video. I came across it today on 2238 Bill. You remember that? Hmm. Written up by Representative Wild yep. originally. Did that, ever, that didn't ever pass, did it? I don't think so. Okay. No, no it never passed. That. But our, our, the reason we talked about it is that somebody actually took the time to write it up. It's on our YouTube, the program that we did, and we show you the actual text of it. Uh, and uh, I want, we want to be putting out more of these now and then. Some people will say that this conversation is off the topic for His Holy Church, but no. It's, a, it, it's underscoring a societal issue. Where we either are taking back our responsibilities or we're not. Right. We're let because they would have. This would have passed. And this the the you you're not going to get that back. Just like Article Two, Section Twenty Two. You're not going to. That was originally put into place back in the 1990s by Oregonians who had a little bit of understanding of how government works. You don't have that anymore. No. And and that's why I think the, this corruption that I uncovered, you know, was able to be to, to prevail, and um, and no one even questioned it until I I discovered it, and yeah. I I was just sitting there waiting for for meetings with people, and I was patiently but persistently waiting, 
in the lobby, and I pulled up my phone because my insatiable curiosity got the better of me. And uh, there's a website um, on the Secretary of State website uh, at the state of Oregon that you can go to, and uh, you can look up campaign um, finance uh, and campaign contributions for every elected official in the state of Oregon if they've elect if they've uh, um, filed an OrStar application. And so all of their contributions are recorded through OrStar. And they have to do that if they receive if contributions. If they receive contributions, you know, I think over anything over $5,000 or something in an entire year or something. Or no, actually it's 700 It's like yeah. $700. If you receive over $700 for a campaign in a single year or during a campaign, uh, you have to register with an OrStar. And I, I've never received that much. So I never had you to. could have. I could have, but I never took it. Um, I was offered it many times. I was offered thousands of dollars. Well, several. you were actually offered by the same guys. Same company. The same company. The same company in question. I never just took came it. And discovered thousands of dollars. I was offered. Tens of and thousands I, I, I said of no. dollars that were given to the people that were sponsored. Every sponsor of this bill received a large uh, check. Of thousands of dollars, one of them up to $25,000, um, and uh, from an entity that I, I didn't recognize when I first saw it, and I just kept digging, and I realized that this entity um, funded. was funded almost entirely. You can also go to that, and you can see where that money's coming from, and it was coming from a private corporation under the name of, uh, I won't say it, but I I recognized it, <laughs> and, and I knew exactly what it was, and um, – so anyone worth their salt and wanting to go look this up or, you know, I mean, they could probably go find this stuff in a heartbeat. And uh, the reality was is I, I just – I got frustrated. I got frustrated. I came home. I spoke to my other commissioners about it. And it's not that it's surprising that this is how the game is played. Right, right. Um, you know, there's a part of me that, that wasn't surprised at all because I know that's how the game is played. They, they it's also got all those it. checks, just about all those checks on, on the, the same day. day. It was uh, it was like a fundraiser dinner, I think is what it is, and that's what they do these big dinners and and hubbub about. You go to these things and you try and you know people come in and they lobby you and everything else, and you say you know I I think it was said in this case uh, by uh, the incoming speaker of the house. She said uh, if you cut me a good sized check, I'll I'll uh, support your bill and I'll carry it. Well, you know, she got a good check, and she didn't. She couldn't carry the bill if she's going to become a speaker. Um, so what she did was she handed it off to another guy. They got some bipartisan support based upon you know, all the other players at hand, and they all put in money. And uh, they tried to, you know, I don't know if they, it was all complete collusion. I don't think the right hand knew what the left hand was doing necessarily, but they got enough people on it that they had a bipartisan bill that looked innocent enough. And it was just like, oh, we're just trying to streamline the process and kind of keep this going. And it was frustrating to me. So now there's this big article in the Willamette Weekly about the the whole thing. Can you remember the title of the article? Um yeah, you're um, probably fine. I have they, it on my phone. It's, they, it just came out the other day, uh, but yeah, I mean, the it was a solar developer sent big checks to lawmakers who could clear the way for his clean energy ambitions, and uh, it 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 was uh, it was uh, by Nigel um, Jacques. Uh, it sounds very French. Uh, February 21st. I never spoke to this individual reporter, but uh, within. Uh, within the first 30 minutes of this article being posted, I had it 
being sent to me by four different people across the state. And uh, one of them actually asked me, did you do this? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I didn't speak to the reporter, but I may have said some things to different people because I was very frustrated at the time. And uh, I tried to, um, and I felt, felt that people need to be held accountable um, Republican or Democrat, I am neither and never will be. Um, yeah. If you hold these offices, you know, you should should have some guts uh, to do what's right and uh, you should own it when you play this this game. It's a dirty game. It's 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 ugly. Um, but they don't even realize they don't realize it. I think in many ways they can you can justify it as well as saying, you know, look, I'm I'm here and I'm doing good. For my people, it's the greatest that's, good. That's what people you know, are arguing they, they with Article all the time. 2, Section Article 20. 2, Section 22 is the same way. That, what that was, real quick, was that you could not accept donations of more than 10% of your total donations from outside of the district or state in which you are running for office. If you're running for a county office or a district office, you could only take 90% of your donations from within that. So then this cuts out all the outside influence. And I've given the example, and there's there's hundreds of examples, but Governor Kate Brown. Uh, we can use her name. Yeah, we can use her because she's gone. I could probably say this about all kinds of people, but she had announced that she was not going to run for office again. She was going to step down from the – and somebody else was going to get the office. And uh, she still accepted $250,000 from George Soros Mm -hmm. long after she said she wasn't even going to run. Now, what happens to that money? Uh, What happens to that money is uh, that uh, they – it goes into a fund. It's tax-free, and they don't have to pay any taxes on it. She's not running for office, so she's not going to spend it on her campaign, but it's supposedly campaign funds. But she could decide to run later on. And she already had over $20 million in her campaign fund, and she's not going to run again. And he gives her another 250000 on top. And he's, of course, from outside of her district, so you can't do that. It was illegal. She, she would have to have $26 million, I think, in there or to get that much money from outside and no other donations from outside. Well, she gets millions of dollars in donations from outside of the state. And so your governor is not your governor. It's, it's She's serving the people who are putting money in her fund. And she ha- she can borrow money against that fund. She can take money out if she had no other income. Uh but she doesn't have to pay taxes on it until she actually spends it personally on herself. And, of course, there's all kinds of ways of spending that money supposedly for your uh, your fund, for your uh, campaign that actually comes back and lines your own pocket. And I could go into that for hours with all kinds of candidates that have been doing this for years. It's all easily traceable, but you would have to have the moral people who are willing to look at this and realize how immoral the system is. But the instead, like I said, that was the law in the Constitution of Oregon that you couldn't do that. And they presented a bill to change the Constitution. And at that time, 75 to 80% of the peop, uh, people who held office in Oregon were in violation of that rule. 
And the, the penalty for violating that rule is you have to st- you are no longer legally in your office. Mm-hmm. You have to step out of your office. You you are not you have to the, vacate office. You immediately. have to vacate the office immediately if that is, and it's just a matter of math, and it, it, it's a matter of a record. You can look it up. That meant that the governor was not the governor. Automatically, she was not the governor, and she cannot run for office again. Uh, in the state of Oregon. I, I think she might be able to run for some other office, but she couldn't run for governor again. But uh, and but this would have gone for all the senators, all the, uh, the congressmen, the yep. legislatures, all the county commissioners, uh, the mayor of Portland. All of them were in violation. Mm-hmm. The vast majority were in violation. If the Republicans really were interested. And the in Republicans freedom, knew about it. Yeah, they knew about it. I'm not talking the Republican senators and reps. I'm talking Republican people or Republican members, like everyday Joes. Yeah. There was a bunch of us that knew about it, and we were all talking, and then all of a sudden I didn't have any compadres anymore. They all disappeared. Because they wanted their guy in. Well, that you can't have a republic if that's the moral stand you take on the rules that you've already sworn to uphold. I mean, all those guys swore to uphold the Constitution. They were all in violation of the Constitution. They all were required to step down from the office. And if the Republicans actually did that, they said, okay, we're in violation, but so are all the Democrats. And the Democrats were a little bit more in violation than the Republicans. But it still was pretty pervasive. Yeah, because there were more Democrats than there yeah. were Republicans. They had a supermajority in both the House and the Senate. Also, they're very good at getting that extra money. Well, <laughs> well, that's because – well, I mean if you're going to give money to a legislator and you got a bill to pass, you're going to give more money to the guys who actually have the power. Yeah. And it, for two reasons. One is they're the ones in power. Yeah. <laughs> And the second is you don't want to piss the guy off in power by giving more money to the guys that aren't. Yeah. And but most of this money is coming from out of state. Agreed. And now it is. Uh, yeah. If they were in, in in compliance with Article Two, Section Twenty Two, which the people voted to get rid of because they said we want campaign finance reform, and they lit, that's what they, they called it. But nobody that's read what it. They called it on the on the ballot measure, but no one ever reads anything anymore. Yeah. They don't read that. They don't study anything. They don't read their Bibles. They don't study that either. Yeah, if they read their Bible, they would know that the slothful shall be under tribute. And and that is ultimately, you know, it's it's just all of this is in many ways just fulfilling God's promise that yeah. the slothful would be under tribute. And if you're going to be slothful, you're not going to be free. And so this is the same thing I will say to the the general assembly people. They need to look at the whole truth and apply it. And there are, and then also, yeah, I've told you many times before that the mountains of Samaria are the, the, the people that are in charge of bringing you the facts and the truth. And that it's a metaphor. And so if you don't have your own network, you know you're not going to get it from CNN. You're not going to get it from the Portland papers or most of these other news outlets. You have to create your own network that will bring you the truth and share it with you. And we've just given you a little glimpse there, there was a lot more to this story, and it was, you know, I was on the edge of my chair, even though it was pretty late at night. Uh, but it was just unfolding like I, I've i seen so many times before. Yeah, and that's just one story, one example, you know, of just of 
the things that go on. What was that phrase they said about the flurry of bills or the mountain of bills that are coming or what they call flood of bills? Uh, yeah. Oh, next wave. The next wave. That was a comment made to me by a developer who said, this is, we'd really like to get this bill to go through, you know, and this is just to prepare. Uh, one to prepare that for the long session for the next wave of bills. And I got, I got so upset, I started yelling at the guy, and I said, this is why I can't trust you, and, and because you say things like that, and like wave of bills, what are you not telling me? Like, I thought we were working together, and then I come to find out you sneak this bill through, you don't tell me, you intentionally try and run it through, secretly and quietly, you paid off half the state in order to get the bill through a quarter of a million dollars into this, your little fund to go and pay all these other legislators, and then, what? You, you have another wave of bills that you're also not telling me about. Because we know so, that way more money that was transferred over to this PAC group than we actually see showing up in the pockets of all these political people. Right. So we know that they have a huge amount of money sitting there for the next session of bribery. Right. And see, like I <laughs> see, our interests don't align. Me, yeah. me, and any of these people, yeah. really. His, their interest is. Uh, you know, this one particular company's interest is to save the world from global warming and we have to decrease <laughs> our carbon emissions and we need to go to renewable energy and we, we're out of time and the world is going to end if we don't move over to that. And the reality he is he's making billions of dollars or will be making billions of dollars by building each and every one of these projects, utilizing PURPA, which was instituted under Jimmy Carter, to force utility companies into buying his electrons over for other uh, other uh, entities yeah. per se, or their own electrons, like for instance the dams. The more um, as they force these comp force these large utility and transmission companies to buy these power electrons um, from uh, uh, um, uh, the renewable energy sources, they can't use the ones from the dam, even though they're readily available. And so the the whole game is to try and shift from that over to something that's more controllable than the most renewable energy source out there, which is dams and hydroelectric. Um, I'll, I'll just pause there. I thought we were going to talk about Ukraine today, quite honestly. Well, I did talk a little bit about oh, Ukraine. Oh, you did? I missed it. But uh, <laughs> I, had I was uh, quoting that uh, uh, Colonel McGregor, who had an interview with Tucker Carlson, but, uh, yeah, the thing is, is that we're not getting the truth from anybody, but if you really want to be able to assimilate the truth and to do something about it, you, you need people of character, and you don't know who they are. They're not a character because they want their freedom back. They're only a men and women of character, and they want their responsibilities back. And that responsibility includes that they have to care about others. I personally don't think that guy is really interested in renewable energy to save the planet. I think he's interested in the Money. billions of dollars Money. they're going to collect. And, and my interest is in the people of my county and the people of my state and trying to provide them at least with the foresight that, like, you guys are all headed in the wrong direction. We're all still trying to use the government in order to exercise will over our neighbor, and I refuse to do that. 
I refuse to go in that direction. And But I'm in a position where I can say these things and I can talk about them and I can get some people's attention and people are thinking about it. And just the local level. And I've shared it with other commissioners and other judges across the well, whole state. Well, you said that one commissioner had to go home that day because he was so distraught yeah. over discovering Just because what I shared with him what was going day. on. And I explained to him, this is what's happening. And we got into the social economics of it and the, just the societal aspects. And just said, you know, like, this is what the problem is. And I, we underscored other issues that were going on in the county at the time. And it was like, oh, my gosh, I can't take it, James. You're just depressing me. And uh, he just he, – and uh, he actually told me he was getting – was actually sick, and it curdled his stomach. And uh, he actually ended up going home because uh, it just it, it just rubs you so raw. But, you know, like, good. Like, you need to see that. Yeah. That's the truth. I just and, – and I didn't do much. I, I just – peeled back the veil just slightly. I was like, hey, look at this. Look, yeah. there's, there's a guy back there. Did you see him? You know? <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's like the man behind the curtain, he's right there. See him? Okay. All right. All right. Now, calm down. I'll put. I'll close the curtain again. I mean, that's all I did. But see, like I grew up homeschooled with you. And, uh, <laughs> and so this is just an everyday part of my life. And so I'm very aware of these things, you know, and, you know, and I've, I've had the opportunity of meeting some fantastic people in Good Bull, you know, and I, um, I was, uh, and, and I know that the things that I say come across sometimes as very unique. Um, I have a judge from Sherman County that is going to come down here to Lake County this next month uh, to visit with me, and I'm hoping that he stays here at our place when he does visit because we have a big land use uh, conversation going on. And he says, James, if, you know, I'm coming down. I'm coming to Lake County. I want to come m- meet you and your family and, and, and see where you grew up. I want, I want to come down there. You know, we just became good friends. And he's a judge way up there by the Columbia River. He's also a commissioner. Uh, no, he's a judge. Okay. Um, he is, it's, uh, is he the judge for, judge the, for the Board of Commissioners? Uh, for the board. Um, but uh, he, he, he sees over um, uh, court. He actually has court and, you know, whether it be, you know, you know, kid got in trouble because, um, you know, he, he was driving without a license or, you know, or drunk driving or getting into trouble doing something he shouldn't, you know, he has, he can rule over those things rather than send it to circuit court, which he could, the kid could get bounced around for six months. Instead, you know, Judge Joe can sit down with him and he can actually make a ruling and says, you know, you're out of line. Don't let me see it back here again. You know, and, and you, I'm going to sentence you to, to, to 40 hours of, of labor, you know, and volunteer work on your home farm with your dad, you know, and, and he's done stuff like that. You know, it's fantastic. And I'm just like, good for you, you know, and, and he didn't waste the taxpayer's dollars what? and wasting him in the circuit court, you know, waiting for the DA to actually get to him, you know, and then delaying the case because the judge couldn't take care of it. And, you know, he just, just takes care of it it's just done and, and justice delayed is justice denied and and that's what these kids you know and, and young people and some of these smaller cases get held up for months and months and months because there's a bunch of bureaucracy in our administrative courts and because they're not really courts they're administrative courts for yeah. the most part in, in these days yeah sorry um, that's the homeschooling show that's right now. The homeschooling <laughs> show right now. but you know in you know, I, I do find it fascinating. I know that I carry myself a little bit differently when I go to the state capitol. I was sitting there just um, uh, about maybe four months ago. I was at the state capitol, and there was a plainclothes uh, state trooper um, walking around, old retiree, 
and uh, fantastic, uh, you know, just to chat with him. He's a real friendly guy, but he's kind of walking back and forth in front of him, in front of us. And it was me and a couple other lobbyists, and we were sitting down talking about this bill, and I was sharing my perspective on it. And I didn't think I was getting uh, weird or anything, but I was talking about the implications and how this affects counties, how this affects communities and people, and you know, on you know the little guy. You know, I was explaining what this does to our society as a whole. And we were throwing some things back and forth and ideas and amendments and everything. We were waiting largely for another session to end so I could get in and get testimony. And uh, the I'm speaking at uh, Ben Shapiro speeds here, so forgive me. Um, <laughs> the At one point, there was just a brief moment of silence, and I had paused and hadn't said anything and we'd all kind of had agreement and uh, I kind of noticed the state trooper was kind of sitting there kind of looking at me and looking down the hallway and had this kind of kind of look like I'm not even going to touch that <laughs> you know kind of thing and uh, all of a sudden one of the lobbyists he turns to me and goes are you a Christian <laughs> and I remember turning to look at him and uh, you got you got to put yourself in my shoes. I'm at the Oregon State Capitol, Oregon State Capitol <laughs> in Salem, and someone and this guy especially had the guts. Now I'm a I'm a commissioner. I I don't normally make people. I I, I very seldom ever make someone address me by my by my title. Uh, or by oh Commissioner Williams, you know, kind of thing. I don't. I generally never make let someone call me Mr. Williams because I turn around and start looking for you. Um, <laughs> but uh, this guy, he was a, not really a lobbyist. He was an agency person, and he didn't address me by my title. And he asked me a very personal question about my religious status. He totally broke broke rank. He felt comfortable enough to do that with me, and he was brave enough to ask that question in the hallways of the state capitol. And and something I had said and the way I had carried myself posed that question, and it was somehow important to him to ask that question. And when I turned to him, I looked at him, and I realized he wasn't being facetious or strange. He just said I, – I looked at it back at him, and I said, yes. <laughs> why and proceeded to have a, a fantastic conversation it's just about my faith and and you know, how this impacts you know my decisions and, and no I don't check my morality at the door and I don't check my my faith at the door and you know then we talk about separation of church and state yeah you know but you know <laughs> that's another whole conversation but you know, I've I've been ridiculed for that in the past I because I'm I, I declare my faith. I declare my my position and my belief, and is that we're not alone in the universe, and and by any stretches of the imagination, and uh, everything that we do here on this plane um, affects our soul, and um, and I I truly believe that we are headed into some very 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 dark times, and uh, I'm currently in a season of my life where this is where I'm at. And I've met some fantastic people. I've been able to witness to people in more than just uh, scripture, but in the practicality and the application of, um, you know, uh, 
a spiritual and kingdom oriented perspective. Yeah, the uh, the the reality is we saw it during COVID. I saw it from the very beginning that you were beating down there and getting your education from some malicious, if not mischievous, uh, or maybe it's to say mischievous, if not malicious, individuals who are working in government. But uh, yeah, vice versa. Yeah, the, the uh, but the COVID thing, the panic, the illogical. Uh, approach to everything under this fear campaign coming through the media concerning the pandemic. If you hadn't been down there, just, you know, cause people become, like you said, some people just finding out that there's corruption, they get so sick, they become dysfunctional. They can't even act. They can't think straight. Uh, it isn't bad yet. No, yeah. no, <laughs> Like, have you read the Gulag Archipelago? (laughs) Have you read Cannibal Island? It can get so much worse. And And we're headed there. Like, you know, people are still putting on weight. Like, obesity is still, like, one of the biggest problems in our society today. I'm telling you, the days we're headed into, obesity isn't going to be a problem anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, when you're on the menu... uh, yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was a rough joke. Sorry. <laughs> everything is changes. Your perspective changes. But anyway, uh, I thought that I would put at least this much into the uh, show archives, and uh, maybe I'll send this off to the General Assembly, Oregon General General or General General Assembly. And I don't know anything about them, really. Yeah. I, uh, you, oh, you and I, I, I have had several. some conversations now about it as it came up uh, a few days ago. I know uh, some of them are for this Oregon Idaho shift thing, no, I, but that well, isn't their focus. Well, I, I don't know what they're for necessarily, but I've never seen them at any of my meetings on the Greater Idaho. Yeah, um, I've never seen them at any discussions I've had at the state legislature for getting rid of um, uh, inheritance tax or um, income tax in the state of Oregon. I've never seen any of these guys actually out there on the crusade with me yeah. on See, anything. The thing so. is, you know, you try to get rid of income tax in Oregon and, and decrease the taxes. And well, it's just stuff. at least the inheritance tax. Uh, That's just 50, terrible. 51% of the people are not going to reduce the taxes. Everybody, if they think that it might affect the benefits. And mm-hmm. so ultimately, because people don't believe that you could take care of one another without the government. Right. I think it's impossible. Right. But that's because they're not real Christians. Real Christians knew that they would be put out of the existing system if they got the baptism of Jesus Christ. But getting the baptism of Jesus Christ was now within their reach because they were seeing what Jesus was organizing. But he was warning them at the same time when you do this life could get they're going to persecute you they're going to hate you even if you're a success there's going to be an element of hate but i tell you if you if you draw those people who actually have some moral integrity you know there will be days of decision for a lot of people yeah uh that it doesn't take a majority of righteous people it takes a small minority of righteous people. But righteousness, just like raising a family, uh, 
being a good neighbor all takes sacrifice. But it also takes organization. But you have to organize yourself from the bottom up. And I will talk more at another time about uh, some of the, the nature of the congregation. Many of these things I said before, but uh, I've been formulating a lot of ideas on that. Like I said, there's a few more YouTubes that are now available at His Holy Church YouTube website. And I'm going to start trying to organize more and putting them out there. Uh, if you have more input, give it to me, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, just in case you're wondering who Freedomizer is, uh, Steve, that's me. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, I don't see anybody's hand up, so I'm going to thank everybody for coming. And we'll see you on the network. Everybody should join the network at preparingyou.com. And... Uh, then form the living network of people who are interested in not just liberty, but righteousness. And righteousness requires that you also be interested in responsibilities. And until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.